Hi, I'm Lawrence Krauss and welcome to the Origins Podcast. Roger Penrose is known to the public as the winner of the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physics, which he shared uh, with several astronomers who, who, uh, who um, discovered a black hole at the center of our galaxy, or at least uh, demonstrated its existence by looking at the motion of stars. And we've talked to one of them, Andre Gez. Uh, Roger shared the Nobel Prize for showing uh, 50 years earlier that black holes, in fact, were an inevitable consequence of general relativity, something which really hadn't been accepted at the time because black holes are so weird. But Roger is known to physicists for many other things as a remarkable mathematician who's developed techniques that have been that have really changed the way we think of general relativity, uh, so-called Penrose diagrams. Uh, he's also uh, discovered a fascinating aspect of nature called Penrose tiles, which he and I talk a lot about, which in some ways was sparked or sparked his interest in, in uh, the art of Escher. And uh, we had a wonderful discussion about very early experience he had as a young man uh, talking to Escher and, uh, and actually helping him in some sense with some of his um, images, some of his impossible images. Uh, Roger has recently uh, promoted uh, an idea in cosmology called conformal cyclic cosmology, which frankly, as I discuss in, the, in our dialogue, is a, is a controversial idea which really hasn't, hasn't been widely accepted uh, in the community beyond himself and his colleagues. And I have uh, several concerns and questions about it. He and I had a, had, a, had a discussion, we talked about his early life in science, his experiences having to do with general relativity, and what led him to his current work, uh, which, which, uh, which we discuss at length in the latter part of the podcast. I hope that this will provide a new glimpse into the way scientists can debate ideas, uh, hopefully respectfully and fruitfully, and how ideas at the forefront of science can remain controversial, and how most important, as we discussed at the end, how scientists should uh, be not happy to be wrong, but certainly willing to be wrong, and proclaim they're wrong and change their minds, because that's what differentiates science from, say, religion. In any case, it was a true pleasure to talk to uh, Roger, and I hope you will enjoy this in-depth discussion of physics and mathematics with Roger Penrose. This is a very special edition of the Origins Podcast as well, because the Origins Podcast video, no ad video, is moving today from Patreon to Substack, to our new, to my new Substack page. And it will be freely, these, this video will be freely available, as all things will be on the Substack page. But I hope, and the Origins Project Foundation's hopes that you will subscribe to Substack, because the funds that, that of subscribers to the Substack site will go to help the Foundation and to help make this podcast possible. Hope you enjoy it. If you don't watch it on on Substack, you can always listen to it uh, on a link through Substack at any of the standard listening sites, iTunes, etc. Uh, or you can watch it on, as always, on the YouTube channel, and we hope you'll subscribe to that if you if you watch it on YouTube. So once again, Roger Penrose.
Well, Roger, thank you very, very much for, for taking the time out to talk to me. I really appreciate it. It's really good to see you again. And uh, and, and and I know, I, I think I emailed you, but now I can personally say also congratulations on the prize. Uh, uh, well, thank you. And uh, I was trying to remember the last time we were together, and I think, I don't know if you remember this, but I, I think it was at Oxford at a debate with philosophers where you and I were partners. And I don't even remember what the context of the debate was, except that I remember that you and I won. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid I don't even remember it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, all I remember is a bunch of Oxford philosophers, and we were talking, I think it was about physics versus philosophy in some way. And, um, and um, which side were we on? Physics or philosophy? We, we were we were on the yeah. I think we were on the physics side. I'm pretty sure. Philosophy is science versus versus physics. And and um and I I, I remember um, yeah. I just remember you were my debating partner on that, and and it was fun to do it. And I, I actually mostly just remember the drinks afterwards. But in any case, um, it was that I think that was the last time we were together. I wanted to um. Uh, talk about many aspects of your science here and and which we'll get to um including ideas about cosmology which is an area we both have worked in among other things but i but this is an origins podcast and i want to i want to um begin with your origins which are quite interesting to me in, in a variety of ways um you come from a, a scientific family in a sense, at least at least your father and your stepfather, and I guess uh, in some sense, uh, uh, at least uh, grandparents as well. My grandfather, my mother's father, certainly. He was a, he was a scientist, physiologist, yes. No, he and, was a professor. Yes, well, now, I'm just wondering where the, um, you know, in the context of growing up in that household, where uh, I... I where the influence was for you to want to learn about science or mathematics? Um, did it come from discussions with your grandparents or which of your parents were sort of encouraged that? Your father? Mainly my father. Also, I should say my older brother, Oliver, who, who, he, he was very precocious, much more. I mean, I wasn't at all. He was. Um, and he knew a lot of physics. And I learned quite a bit from him. But mainly it was my father. From whom I learnt, yeah, quite a lot of mathematics. Actually, he was he worked in in uh, <clears throat> human genetics was his topic. Yeah, but he, he did quite a lot of mathematics. He certainly was interested and excited by mathematics, as as quite a lot of other scientific matters. And I learned a lot from him. Yeah, that's true. I, I've I, I well, I knew your father was a kind of a, worked in genetics. I don't know. Uh, was your mother? Um, was she educated in science at all, or, or? Yes, indeed, she was medically trained. Well, I don't know whether I want to go into this particularly. Okay. She, she was trained as a doctor, mm-hmm. but my father had lots of lots of positive qualities, but he had one big negative quality, which was some for some psychological reason, which I could never get the hang of. He wouldn't let her realize herself oh. in her in her medical profession or in almost anything. It was, oh. it was really strange. He had a lot of good qualities, but I have to strike that one as a bad quality, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it was, it's unfortunate. I think it, it happened a lot, especially in an earlier generation. But that's, that's unfortunate here. But did she um, play a role also in encouraging your interest? I think she did in a slightly, um, well, how would I put it? She couldn't 
express herself in sort of an independent way. But there was sort of she had a way of relating to me which was slightly kind of um, not quite direct. I kind of know how to say it exactly. Okay. I think I learned a lot of how to express myself from her. She was very um, the use of language. I think she she was had a, had a skill in the mind. Oh, I got okay. Quite a bit from her on that, I think. And, and that hap- it's interesting to me that often happens in 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 um, uh, in, in my experience with uh, with mothers. In fact, in terms of language, um, mm-hmm. the did did you read a lot? Uh, did books influence you about your interest in science? Did you pick up books by the you know the standard well known you know James Jeans or whoever else? With you I know? some of these things, but I would say I was not much of a reader. I was a very slow reader, I think. And I did not read a great deal. That's, I, I mean, there were some things I did read, some Bertrand Russell. And, yeah. And, uh, there is, yeah. I, I, I read a bit, but not Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it, there are often, it's interesting to see, the, again, the differences in people in, in both. I love the fact that, it, that, that, that almost any stereotype of a scientist is wrong. And, um, and and, <laughs> yes. and and uh, and that that it takes all types, and I, I think it's encouraging for young people to realize that. And you know, in so many ways, not just uh, you know, some people read a lot, some people don't read, but people often assume, especially young people, that they're not good enough or capable enough because they don't have X quality. And yeah. and and it's really important to realize that people that who have been quite successful sometimes also don't have that quality, whether they're not the uh, mathematical prodigy or they're not they don't read or whatever it t- science when it's healthy takes all all kinds and i think that's really an important i think thing. I, I sort of read second hand you see oliver was a great reader and somehow i got from him well certainly he read to me sometimes and he read to me the the uh mr tompkins books oh um, okay which, yes yeah. i don't remember that and, and various other things to do with science which he did so I think he had a big influence on on my. He was your old. On, on How much physics. older? How much two older? Two years. years. Yes. Yeah, my older. I have one brother who's older, and I think certainly strongly influenced me when I was younger. Although he wasn't, he became a lawyer, but but uh, my interest in a variety of fields was certainly. But impacted. Oliver did become a scientist, and he. Yeah, he's a physicist. In fact, he right. Became a, uh, a member of the Royal Society and so on. Fellow of the Royal Society. Yeah, no. It, well, I want to get to your your siblings because you have a really interesting. There's something <laughs> interesting about your background that that seemed to encourage all of you to do to both to have be very gifted in a, in your own fields, but also to be interested in them. I think it's. Uh, um, uh, um, but you know, I was going to say when it comes to reading, I was going to say in some sense that one of the good things about science, mathematics, and physics in particular, is that if you're good enough, you don't have to read at all. <laughs> As Feynman used to kind of, I think, unfortunately, epitomize in some sense. Uh, um, yes, that's true. It's yeah, true. and um, I wanted there are two aspects of, of your childhood. I want to I want to ask about your your father was a math. A geneticist interested in mathematics. I, you have a stepfather who was a mathematician. I don't know what, what's, whether there was any influence there too or not. That came much later. You much see, later. that was after my father died in the seventies. Ah. Oh, okay. So and it was when my in mother there. married Max Newman, who had been a good friend of my father's way, way back. Oh, interesting. And apparently, he'd had a crush on my mother even way back there. So after my father died, he sort of made a beeline for her. Okay, <laughs> in the seventies. 
You know, but that was okay. That was much later then. Okay. Now, yeah, yeah. And the other thing I can't help saying, because behind me is 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 a, a wonderful river. I'm, I'm I'm now moved back to Canada where I grew up. I haven't been back here in, in fifty real. years. That's yeah, that's a real background. That's that's my beautiful in Prince Edward Island. But it's a beautiful background. But it's um, uh, and I'm I'm very happy to be here. But you have a Canadian background that I didn't know of. You spent some of the war years, I think, in 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 Canada, Absolutely. in London, Ontario. What what was your father doing there? Well, I was there from, well, I was in 19, <clears throat> 1939, I guess, we went there. Was it 1940? Oh, you know, my years are getting confused. 1939, that's right. I, I, 1939, I was seven years old when we went, and I had my eighth birthday in Canada. Yes, we went first to the U.S., to uh, Philadelphia. Uh -huh. and, and then my father got his, his job um at the Ontario Hospital, just just near near just outside London, Ontario. And so we spent the war years there. So that was a big influence on me. In in what way? Well, um I went to Ryerson School and then to Central Collegiate for my final year. Uh it was curious. Now my first year there I had a teacher I, I couldn't get on with at all. She had what was called high grade two and low grade three. I was in low grade three. Okay. Now she considered, because I was very bad at doing mental arithmetic, she used to have these things where you to add a number and then multiply. Them. And it was done too quickly for me. I just got lost. I always got lost. And she thought I was too stupid for low grade three. It moved <laughs> me down into high grade two. Wow. <laughs> I was a little bit too good for high grade two. So she couldn't place me between you know, high grade two and low grade three. However, later on, she got rid of me. I think by, just as a way of getting rid of me, I got moved up with some other people into high grade three. I, oh. I don't think she thought I was good enough for high grade three, but, I, but she, she never got on. I think she probably thought this was a way of getting rid of me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a, I forget whether it was in high grade three or later, but I did have a very insightful teacher, Mr. Mr. Stinnett. And I, he used to have these ex mathematics tests, and I never did very well in these tests. But oh. he noticed that the reason I didn't do well is I simply didn't finish the tests. And so he decided to let me have as long as I liked. So oh. I could just go on and go on and go on, and the people were playing in the playground, and I could watch them out of the windows. <laughs> and I would just be slogging away through the test. And then I would do very well. I'd get into them in the 90s, you see. And he realized that, that it was simply that I was too slow. Oh, wow. Well, this is fascinating. Because, again, I mean, I've known of you as a brilliant mathematician since since I started doing physics and, and, and it's, it's fascinating that, that, um, in a sense you were, um, people didn't realize that. it wasn't, it wasn't as if you, they recognized you as a mathematical prodigy or anything like that early on. And no. well, well, I used to make models and things for my father. So this, uh, this was a separate thing we did at home. Yes. Well, and now think, when did you, so did that, um, did that, I was going to ask you, man, maybe this is relevant. Uh, I mean, good teachers are really from some, again, it's not universal that it's important for people. I know some people who said teachers never impacted on them their whole lives, but, but having good teachers, certainly for me and many people I know has been a, a particularly good teacher has, can have a huge impact on a, on a young person. And that's why I guess I'm, I'm, I give so much respect, especially for teachers of young children, because they can really, really change a person's trajectory. 
And uh, and this teacher had an impact. Did you? I was going to ask you what got you interested in mathematics. Your father, of course, talked to you about mathematics. But when did you kind of get the sense, or or did you get the sense that you wanted to be a mathematician early on, or did that just kind of happen? Ah, uh, it's a good question too. Actually, I remember. I mean, there's a story I often tell. You see, my older brother was clearly going to be a physicist. My younger brother was only interested in chess. But, that's not quite true. He was interested in all games. And of course, part of my background, I don't know, do I, you have this down, but my younger brother, Jonathan, became the yeah, chess champion for record times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in record time, how old was he when he became a chess grandmaster? Well, he okay. never, he did become a grandmaster, but that's a slightly complicated uh, story. Okay. Well, um, he did eventually become a grandmaster, but, but his... Uh, I can't remember. He first won the British Chess Championship, I think, in his early 20s. Ah, okay. He was in his 20s. But he entered for the British Boys Championship, which he won, I I remember. But he was good at almost all games. And I remember, this is a curious story, I remember he beat me at this game, you know, stone, paper, scissors. Yeah, sure. And he completely walloped me regularly. I thought, surely this is a game of chance. How can he beat me at this game of chance? And I said, I mean, this is sort of some... Um, jinx or something like that. So yeah. what I did was I got out a table of logarithms, opened it in the middle, a huge nil, sort of uh-huh. took these random figures and translated the numbers into stone, paper, and scissors, yeah. whatever they were. And I made yeah. a long strip of this. <laughs> and I would follow this, and then I broke even. So uh-huh. that was a great relief to me. <laughs> he was actually using psychology or something. I mean, he had an extraordinarily good memory. Used to play this game, what people call pairs or Pelmanism. Yeah. You put the cards back and you see the backs of the cards, and then you turn two over. And when you put them back, you say, All I see is the backs of the cards, but <laughs> evidently he still sees the fronts of the cards when they're done the other way. And he absolutely bought me in that game. There was no question about that one. Well, but, you, you go on, sorry. But anyway, his, the fact that he was so much better, obviously, than me at chess. I never played chess. Well, that's not quite true either. I I hated chess and tried not to ever to play chess. <laughs> there was an occasion when I was at school in London, University College School, when uh, my younger brother Jonathan was the first board at chess, and mm-hmm. my three Jewish friends were the board two, three, and four. And occasionally they needed a board five, and they put me on board five, I think just to scare the opposition that there were two Penroses in the team. <laughs> I never won a game, I have to say. I never played chess apart from that. Um, but Did, I think he, he sort of, he sort of um, immunized me against playing chess, which I think was important. I don't know whether I would have ever got interested in chess, but I certainly didn't because, of, because he was much too good. Ah, that's you mean you think you might have gone to the dark side if, if he it's hadn't been quite, so... it's quite possible. We see Oliver did play chess. And he was four year four four years and four months older. And so he was able to keep by by really working very hard at it, he was able to keep ahead for quite a while until they both played in the British chess championship and Jonathan came out ahead of him. <laughs> yeah. Oliver was good enough to be Cambridge University champion, so you get some feeling. Oh wow! Okay, well, look, let's <laughs> let's let's um, 
It's it's interesting. I'm glad to see that you're, you know, this is another stereotype that you're not a, a, a well, maybe you could have been a chess, uh, a wonderful no, at chess, no. but you weren't. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Although it is a game of people who like, well, the memory part is, I think, really and uh, obviously important to be a good. To it was be very good with him. He could remember. Certainly up to the scale I ever knew him at that when growing up. Yeah, I think that's right. He could remember every game he'd ever played. But in a sense, you like games, and we'll get to that, I think. Or or like puzzles is perhaps a better way of putting it, because we'll get to what I think are some beautiful, obviously beautiful puzzles that you've been involved in. Um, And and so that natural interest. But let's, let's, since you mentioned uh, two of them, you're, you have this amazing, the siblings are just amazing. Uh, As you say, Oliver, a physicist. Um, your sister Shirley Hodgson's a geneticist, right? Yes, yes. And, she was the one who followed in my. You see, I was supposed to be the doctor in family. This is ah, you, know, you we too. Was <laughs> is it, that right? Well, I yes. mean, my mother. I was, you know, a Jewish mother. I want. She wanted me to be a doctor. My brother to be a lawyer, and he became oh, a I lawyer. See. Which put. No, you see, my both parents being medically trained. Ah, of course. My mother obviously was going to do physics. He was a dead last. Jonathan was only interested in games and chess and stuff. He was a dead last. Roger, he's the one who is going to follow up in there. And I used to take these vocational guidance tests in Canada. And you sort of line these things up this way and that way. And my uh-huh. came out as a doctor. And I was going to be the doctor in the family. And they were very relieved that they, you know, I was going to carry on the tradition. And the moment came when I was entering my last two years at school, University College School in London. And each one of us had to walk up to see the headmaster and see what they were going to do in their final two years. So I walked up and I was going to be a doctor as I walked up to see him. And he said, well, what do you want to do in your final two years? And I said, I think I have this right, biology, chemistry and mathematics. And he said, no, you can't do that combination. If you want to do mathematics, you can't do biology. If you want to do biology, you can't do mathematics, make your choice. So I said mathematics, physics, and chemistry. Oh, wow. And there was my medical degree down the tubes <laughs> that moment. <laughs> oh, it's fa- oh, this is fa- this is again fascinating for me personally because I, I, I wanted to be a doctor. My vocational test had me be a doctor in Canada when I grew up. But I think, but you know, my, because my mother had convinced me and I convinced myself I wanted to be a doctor. And then for me, it was in the final years of high school when, um, well, yeah, when when I I guess my problem was that my mother had sort of convinced me doctors were scientists, and I got fascinated with science. And at some point, I kind of had the realization that they weren't necessarily the same thing. That and the fact, and it may have been different in Britain, and well, maybe it wouldn't wasn't. But I, I actually did take a biology class, and at that point, it was just memorization. It was just memorizing the parts of a frog, and that, and I just said, this doesn't interest me at all. At, at that time, of course, biology has changed a lot. That, Yes, but you see, I think, I mean, my mother thought I would have had a good bedside manner or something. I don't know about yeah. that. But I would have been a complete disaster with drugs because I would never remember any of these names and so on. Yeah. So I, I shouldn't have been let loose on these things at all. And well, it, and so it's, yeah. so it's interesting that you did, it sort of was a choice to do, you know, but, you knew, but mathematics, but it was math, biology or mathematics. So by then you kind of knew you wanted to do mathematics. And yes, I'm I, and, yes. and of course you did do mathematics and and I want to ask you it's jumping ahead a little bit do you think of yourself as a mathematician or a physicist first and foremost <laughs> often when I talk to people I say when I'm amongst 
physicist, I'm a mathematician. Mathematicians, I'm a physicist. Um, that's an intriguing question. I think, you see, I'm very interested in the mathematics, but it's got more and more focused as uh, in the physics. I mean, the physics is the driving force, but the mathematics is, is the way you go. Okay, so but so okay, but the physics be, was the driving force, but it wasn't all. I mean, was it? But initially, I mean, your PhD was on tensor methods and algebraic geometry. Was it? Was it? Mo, was it motivated by physics, or was it motivated no. by interest in new mathematics? That was mathematics. Yeah, no, sure. Okay, you see all these stories. I have to tell you all these stories. Then that's fine. Because one of the stories, I have to backtrack a little bit here. I okay. think it was when I was at University College London doing mathematics. I should say my father was not keen on my doing mathematics and not something else. He thought if you could do other things, you should do mathematics. And on the side, like he did in some sense. Yes, that's right. And he was not keen on my just doing a mathematics course. But he got one of the lecturers, a man called Kesselman, who made up tests. I have a lot of respect for Kesselman. He made up a special test. I can't remember whether it was six or 12 problems. And he said, look, you can do these problems, take the whole day, if you like, do as many or as few as you like. If you only do two or three, that's fine. I, I did the lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but these were all tests with sort of a twist to them. They were not sort of straightforward. Oh, okay. I, I don't know. He must have worked very hard on working this out. But anyway, since I did so well on those tests, my father sort of relented and said, okay, I'll do that. That, that's going back a little further, but let's not go back quite so far. There were some radio talks. Uh, how, by the way, how, how, when was this? Uh, what, what stage? Was this when you were an undergraduate or, or younger? I, when I was a, uh, in my, as an undergraduate, okay. went to the University College uh, for lectures and things there. I can't remember exactly which year it was. It doesn't that, matter. I just wondered if it was before yeah, university or not. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted, but you were going, you were going to move on. to. Well, one could check this out because the Fred Hoyle radio talks were key. Ah. And I, I remember racing home to hear these radio talks. There were five of them. I think they started with the earth and the atmosphere and then they worked their way out and solar systems. Yeah, sure. Galaxies. And then he talked about cosmology. And when he talked about cosmic, this was the steady state, the days of the steady state model. Sure. And he talked about the galaxy, which would see faster and faster. At a certain point, they would reach, reach the speed of light. And when they exceeded the speed of light, they would disappear and you wouldn't see them. And I had drawn little pictures and things, and I couldn't quite get my mind around this. And I was visiting Cambridge, and I was visiting my brother, Oliver, for some reason, which I had now forgotten. But I remember having this lunch with him in the Kingswood restaurant. And we were talking away. And I said, I didn't quite understand. Fred Hall was giving these very nice talks, but I didn't quite understand about these galaxies disappearing and so on. And he said, well, look, I don't understand much about cosmology. But sitting on the table over there is one of my good colleagues, Dennis Sharma. And he knows all about cosmology. He'll tell you. So I went and sat down next to Dennis and explained my little problems and drew my probably light cones and things. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember what. And surely they will just fade away. They don't they just disappear like that. So he said, well, look, I don't really know about this. I'll go and ask Fred. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I didn't hear what came out of that. 
But when I did go to Cambridge, eventually, as a, as a research student, no, uh, yeah, as a research student, doing algebraic geometry, you say algebraic, you know, working out a hodge. Yeah. And um, Dennis sort of took me under his wing. And he, uh, we went, went on long drives to, to, to plays in, in Stratford, Shakespeare plays. Sure, and sure. And uh, often stopping off in Oxford, just one reason or another, and driving at great speed around corners and things like that. And pointing <laughs> to, that's the force, that's the action of the distant stars. You <laughs> 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 Marx principle and things like that. And uh, then we discussed, you know, what happened? Well, suppose the Earth disappeared, but you still feel the accelerations. And what about so on? Suppose the stars are removed. Mm-hmm. So we had these sort of conversations a lot. And it was very influential on me. So I learned from Venice a great deal of physics. So I would say that my early education in physics largely came from Venice, Dennis, Dennis Sharma. Sure. Apart, I would say there were also three courses I went to in my first, second, I can't remember exactly which years, at Cambridge, three courses which had nothing whatsoever to do, in, to do with my research. The three courses were one, um, Herman Bondi. Oh, wow. On, on general relativity. Mm-hmm. One was a man known Steen on mathematical logic. Mm-hmm. One was Paul Dirac on quantum mechanics. Not, not, not bad. <laughs> <laughs> not, not bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and they were all extremely influential, influential on me in, in many ways. The Steen one, and, because and I you, learned about Hurdle's theorem. And, Oh, medical logic and that sort of thing. Yeah, that had a big effect. It really, my point of view that I later formulated more strongly came from Steen's lectures and understanding about Turing machines and Gödel's theorem. And he was very clear on those topics. Wow, this is uh, fascinating. Because I knew, of course, Shiamat had an impact, but I'd assumed it was after you finished your PhD. And, no, uh, and, uh, 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 okay. Now, it's interesting that Shyama took you under your wing, his wing when you were doing a student mathematics, but I guess, um, was it because of the introduction you had with your brother, or how did you, or, or is that's it just a... Yes, that's how I knew him. Oh, but I oh. think it was my, just the fact that I seemed to have some insights into cosmology, which which he hadn't seen before. Oh. I think it was really just drawing light currents, which is not much of an insight, really. But that's well, we'll get to that. Well, it is. It changes. It changed the world in many ways. I want to. I want to get to that. We'll get there eventually in the next five or six hours. No, and, and it, but um, but this is fascinating. Well, but I want to. I still want to focus on this sort of transition from mathematics to physics. So you knew you, you did your PhD in, in algebraic geometry, and tensors, of course, are highly relevant to physics. But it was really the the algebraic geometry that fascinated you at the time. And one of the reasons I'm asking is a personal one. I did a degree in mathematics and one in physics. Um, my, and, and what kind of surprised me is, you know, I was always very good in mathematics, but, but there were some really excellent mathematicians, young mathematicians who, who, who were, uh, who I was with in my mathematics classes. And I just assumed that, you know, since, since mathematics, since physics was really mathematics to me, I mean, it was really, you know, it was the basis of physics, mm-hmm. that these mathematicians would 
would breeze through the physics classes that if, if, when that some of them did take with me. And what shocked me is that they were much better mathematicians than me, but they could didn't have a, but they had a heck of a hard time in the physics classes, which I shocked me because I thought it would should be trivial to them. And at the same time, to me, what kind of I was trying to decide, and I saw that when I was in physics classes, I could see where we were going. In math classes, I could always kind of do everything. But I could never kind of see beyond the horizon, if you want to call it that. I couldn't see where things were going. And that's when I kind of realized I wasn't a mathematician. And I'm wondering if that kind of, but you, you well, if that impacted on you at all. But I mean, I guess it didn't because you kind of knew you were a mathematician. But I wanted to sort of ask in that sense um, about your experience as a mathematician who obviously, obviously had insights about physics. I think there's something of what you say in me also, but it's a little bit different. Um, well, I should also I keep telling you these little stories because they're very influential. In one way or well, another. no, I think it's it really not only just interesting to me, but interesting for people who are listening. The stories are a wonderful way to understand things. Go See, on, when sorry. I went to work with Hodge, I was one of four graduate students. Mm -hmm. One of them gave up after a little while. I don't remember how long. So then when they were three. One of them did go through, get a PhD, and he gave up mathematics at that point and became interested in history and philosophy of, of physics, I guess. That was Michael Hoskin. Oh, okay. And he became uh, a historian or a lot of, mm. I don't know, exactly, of physics, I guess, primarily. And the two remaining people were left. I was a little bit, I chose a topic Hodge had a list of topics, and I chose one of these. And I, Hodge decided that I looked as though I wasn't altogether happy with this topic. And he said, well, perhaps you'd like to sit in on the other graduate students' class and just see what, what, you, what you make of it. So I sat in on this other graduate students' class, and I did not understand a single word of what's going on. And I thought, my God, if they're all like this, what am I doing here? Oh. That was Michael Atia. Oh, Michael T. Okay. Feels mentalist, I guess. Yeah, good yeah, friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got to respect each other in our different ways. <laughs> yes, no, that was Michael T. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a high bar to. <laughs> I realized there was something a bit special about Michael T. afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Who, by the way, one should say, had a huge influence on physics. And I used, I got to know him too. And, and he was a, he was wonderful to talk to as a physicist to talk oh, about I, mathematics. Yes, yes, he was. Yes, but he knew all the mathematics. He, he had an extraordinarily broad, but not just as knowing; it was understanding what was wanted. Yeah, exactly, in a different sort of way. Yes, and there was a thing I remember this occasion. I had a problem. I was just beginning to see the importance of certain things. It had, to do with twister theory and how to how it got mm -hmm. developed in a certain way. And I talked to his singer, who was this great collaborator. Oh, yeah, another person I, yeah. I, I, I talked, talked to. Him and said, how do I solve this problem? He said, oh, that's not right. I'll tell you how to do it. You just solve these equations here, and then that tells me the answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> then when I got back to Cambridge, this was in the States, I got back to, to Cambridge and I talked to Michael. I said, because I wasn't quite happy, couldn't see quite how to solve this equation. I, I asked him the same question. And he said, oh, you're doing it like this. And he, he drew a little picture. He said, it's this and this and this. And then he said, well, you have to show that this thing is number of degrees of freedom, this and so on. And then you do it like this, and then you, kind of, you take a line and the number of lines, and there's, there's your answer. Okay. 
Wow. <laughs> 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 you, you should take this and let's bring these subjects together and out pops your answer. And that was my problem, see. <laughs> yes, Michael Atiyah. And, and it's interesting, both Singer and Atiyah, the Atiyah Singer Index theorem is incredibly That's right, important. Michael, that, this was an, an instance of the Atiyah Singer Index yeah. theorem. Yeah, wow. <laughs> well, okay, so so it was clear to you that there were, um, how can I put it, better mathematicians maybe uh, 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 around you. Um, but yeah, there were people who were, who were much better at handling the mathematics. I felt I had some quality that was different in a way. Which is true. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I don't know what it was. But it was not the same as Michael's. You see, he had this great grasp. And there were people talking about new ideas that were coming in using, um, as, as Max Newman, <laughs> who became my stepfather, used mm. to say, in, in his younger days, in topology, they were talking about triangles. Now they mm. talk about squares. Squares, and soon they'll be pentagons. And this was going on. And the people were talking about this abstract, very abstract ideas. And I could never get my feeling, the proper feeling for those abstract things that people were going on with and had such fluency with. And I couldn't pick up on it so much. I was much better at fiddling with the kinds of geometrical ideas. And well, speaking of, speaking of geometrical ideas, I wonder what, you know, I tend to think pictorially, and it seems to me you you do too in many ways. Uh, in particular, around around the same time, I think, uh, I was I was amazed. I didn't realize that Escher's influence on you and your influence on Escher, which I should have known about, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 so I apologize for not. But... Um, the 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 geometric i mean you're obviously interested in geometry but the but it seemed to me that this fascination about impossible pictures combined an interest in puzzles and kind yes. of games with an yes. interest in in geometry in a very pictorial way i do th and, and and then we'll get to light cones but 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 um you, would you yeah. say you think about mathematics pictorially and and oh, yes very much i would say i'm much more visual than I would always, see, when I was at school, I remember thinking, you know, that I maybe thought rather differently about mathematics than other people. And when I went to university, I would find people who thought like myself. It wasn't like that at all. Right. <laughs> I found people felt more differently from me than I had experienced before. And I would talk to somebody and I didn't understand much of what they were saying and he didn't understand what I was saying. But in the end, I could see what, what, what it was. Uh -huh. And it was somehow, I think they were out of our class. I can't remember how many people there were, maybe about 14 people. There were three, I would judge, who could think visually. One of them could, but was not specifically visual. One of them was more visual, and, and there was me. I was particularly visual. But on the other hand, most of the others were not visual. And I always thought that somehow... I don't know, that there's a kind of selection advantage not to be visual in mathematics. Yeah. But I had this experience when I, at university college school, no, university college, when I did my uh, undergraduate degree, that the way they did it in UCS, in, in UCL, was to have the first two years, you would take your main exam at the end of the first two years, and then your specialist topics at the end of the third year. Mm. Now that's so. I'd done my first two years, and then in the, the third year, I was doing the two geometrical papers. You see, now as it turned out, as I found out later, 
My best papers were not on the geometry. Oh. They were on algebra. And the thing is, in algebra, you, you just, you don't have to, you, you see your equation, then you go over to there. Whereas the geometry, you, you read the problem, you translate it into a picture, you solve the problem, and then you translate it back into words and write it down in a lot of words. And this sort of flipping backwards and forwards, I was, I didn't finish the papers. And it was like that. And then my slowness began to show itself. Oh, interesting. So it was, but I rather felt that there is a selective advantage in not being the visual type in mathematics. Yeah. Partly just because if we're in the examinations, it's selected against. But if you, are, if you think about the mathematics in a geometrical way, you can't get it out so easily. As if you're directly doing Yeah, you go off and then come back. And, and, yes, and, yes. and, and I yeah. felt there was very much of that double translation in, in, in what I had to do, and this was slowing me down. Oh, and it's probably it, true in, in the classes, too, that the people I taught, I remember lecturing, that I tended to be, be a bit visual in the way I taught. And often they didn't like it very much. So they wanted me to write down equations all the time and not draw pictures. And that somehow it's only a rather small proportion of them who come through who do have these visual skills. And the best ones can do both, of course. I mean, Michael Atiyah was very much... Yeah, sure. He could do both. It's interesting. Yeah. And when you say that, it's interesting to me. I just thought of the history of physics. It was probably Galileo was probably lucky that they didn't have algebra at the time, or at least because he <laughs> he thought he thought in terms of pictures and much of his you know, which is okay. now much of what he did, which seems called convoluted, could be done in an instant algebraically. But he was, but he didn't have to do that translation. He was a good artist too. Yeah, he's a good artist as well. In fact, that you know, you just hit me back to where I wanted to go, which is, I mean, I'm, I, I, one of my big points throughout much of my career, especially my popularization of science is that is this connection between science and culture and this, this unfortunate, um, uh, branching, uh, of, of science as a separate area when it's not, it's a part of our culture in, in every way. And, and as is art and, and, it, and, and the, and um, and I often say that that uh, you know that the purpose of of the two is the same. They change our perspective of our of our place in the cosmos. And when you see a piece of art, it does that, or a piece of music, and listen to a piece of music. And and same with science. But the actually the 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 conjoining of art and science. I can't think of a better example in some ways than your experience with Escher. And I and I and I. We're, I want to have a number of questions about that. And we will get to cosmology eventually, but this is still fascinating. And I think, I hope it's fascinating for others, but, but it, I don't care. It's fascinating for me. Um, and and uh, uh, were you interested in art or how did, how did your, uh, how did you, the thing with Escher come about? And maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Well, I had already been interested in, uh, of the three brothers. I mean, my sister Shirley came along later. She, she mm -hmm. had an interest in art, but the two brothers were not at all. I was uh -huh. the artistic one amongst uh -huh. those three, um, and so I, did, I certainly could relate to my father. Now he was a, he was a very good artist, but he oh. came from an artistic family. His oh. father was a professional painter, extraordinarily skilled. Yes, oh, okay. I mean very traditional in what he did, but they were extremely uh, skilled artistic oh. works. James, oh. James Doyle Penrose. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Okay, so that's interesting. This background you have—it's—it's it's fascinating. And, and my all—all all three brothers 
of him. So that he was one of four brothers. They were all good artists. Oh. The one who became most distinguished an artist was his younger brother, Roland, who became part of the surrealist movement. He was a great friend of Picasso and, and oh, wow. Ernst and the, the artistic crowd. And he became uh, a big figure in, in, in the surrealist movement in, in Britain. Wow, that's uh, well. That's a whole other subject. I wrote a book about once about impressionism in extra dimensions and and uh, and 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 um, and and Picasso and and others and and you know those his seeing many faces a face from many different perspectives is the way it would look if you were four dimensional looking down at a three dimensional object and and there was a lot of fascination at that time with mathematics in that in that particular art world. But that's a a, a, a separate thing. But so you were the artist. Can you? I mean. Uh, can you draw well uh, as well, or no, not because my vision has gone to pieces. But oh. no, I used to do that. In fact, if you look at if you look at most of my books, you will see the drawings are done by me. Okay. Ah. Okay. I didn't like, really. All the books, you have to look. The, the the early ones were not. I got browbeaten into letting the artist. Yeah, but eventually but you were. It was like this, and I would sketch it out for the for the professional artist, and they would be drawn. Look, it's wrong. This line should be found. That yeah. one, not in front of it. And I'd correct it, and it'd come back, and it would still be wrong. And I get, look, this is ridiculous. Why did I just do it myself? So, so, so in the new book, for example, I I I want to focus because I I thought I should focus on. One thing, I, the new book, uh, which is largely on on, the, on your new ideas in cosmology, there are lots of pictures. You did all those pictures? In all the book? ones which were not directly taken from, from Grant, something uh, like that. Wow, okay, interesting. All of the ones, that, going back to the, certainly the Empress New Mind, they were mm -hmm. all there. Okay, wow. But Road to Reality, yes, no, I did them. Wow, and then, I mean, okay, so there, there's this wonderful... Henro's uh, triangle and and um, and which I guess you know well was drawn. I don't know if you hand drew it or originally and with with the straight lines or or not. But um, I drew it originally. Yes. Well, I put a little bit of no. Almost nobody copies notices the perspective in the drawing. There is a perspective yeah, it, in the drawing in the in the paper I had with my father. Ah. Oh. oh really? Okay. Yes. Was that so? Does the Penrose Triangle was with your father or no? Yes. Oh, well, I didn't you, know that. No, that the story was. Well, I wrote, I think, three papers with my father. Is it three or four? Wow. One, two. I think it's four. I can't. The the, the puzzles for Christmas. Yes, that. Oh, oh, wow! Wonderful. I'm just trying to. I'm losing count. But um, but yes, the, the, the paper on the impossible objects was by my fa my father and me. Oh, you see, isn't that wonderful? I'd been to this Escher exhibition. This was when I was in my second year as a graduate student. And I went with a colleague of mine to Amsterdam to see the, uh, this was the Congress, the International Congress of Mathematicians taking place in Amsterdam. And at one point, I think I was just getting on a tram and my lecturer in topology, Sean Wiley, was just getting off. And he held this book in his hand, which was a catalogue. I said, what on earth is that? And there was this picture of Escher, sort of night and day, and the birds going back yeah. this way. And I what's that? And he said, you'd be interested. There's this artist called Escher, who's an exhibition in the Van Gogh Museum. So I went and I saw it, and it absolutely stunned me. And uh, I went away thinking, let me try and do something impossible, not quite of the court sort I saw in, the, in this exhibition. 
because at that time he didn't have one. And then I drew this triangle with bridges and roads and things going off in different directions. And I simplified it to the triangle. Then I showed mm -hmm. my father, and he then started to draw buildings which were impossible and then came up with a staircase. So we decided we'd write, like to write a paper on that. We couldn't think what subject it was, so where do we send it? And then my father said, oh, I happen to know the editor of the British Journal of Psychology, so we'll decide it's psychology. Uh, and so he got him to accept the article for the British Journal of Psychology. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. And we gave credit to Escher in his well, the exhibition, and we sent a copy to Escher. And it was through that that Escher and my father had a correspondence. And when I was driving in in the Netherlands for some other reason, and I was somewhere near to um, where Escher lived, and I phoned him up. And he invited me and my then wife, and we had tea, and, and I talked to Escher for a bit. And we sat at the end of a long, I was at one end of a long table, he was at the other end, on two sides. At one side he had his pile, he said, I don't have many of these left. But he pushed the other pile towards me and said, choose one. <laughs> wow. Wow. This was a, a real challenge to choose one. Yeah. yeah. Holy mackerel. What a, wow. You still have it, I assume. I have, yes. Well, it's, I don't have it in, I wouldn't dare have it in my own house. It's, yeah. I, I, I now have a record. I don't know if it's a record or not, but I have nine ashes. Wow. Wow. I, it's quite a puzzle how I actually have nine of them. I know yeah. how I have two of them. Well, I know how it happened and why it happened, but I know how it happened, but why it happened, I don't know. It's strange. But I, two of them were one that he gave, Escher gave to my father, which was the staircase, the ascending and descending. You, you, wow, you have that? Wow. I have that. And the other one was to pick one I picked out of this pile, which he was rather pleased that I chose because he said people don't normally appreciate that one. <laughs> it's called Fish and Scales, Fishes and Scales. Oh. And it's the sort of um, violation of theory of types, kind of. Yes. You have this fish and it's got scales and the scales get bigger and bigger and then they become a fish and then its scales it become the original fish. So it has this paradoxical nature. Yeah, it's wow. a, a very striking picture. It is one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 well it's what a fortunate thing. We're on the Ashmolean Museum. They can be seen. Anyone who wants to see them can say, I can... Now you well, this is wow. Well, that's a very fortunate experience. But uh, and and um, but you actually, as I'm right, that you influenced Escher, right? The ascending staircase was motivated by the impossible triangle, or am I wrong about that? I had a staircase in our paper. Oh, you had the staircase in paper, and but his paint, his piece of art was done after that, motivated by that. Am I wrong? That's right. Yes. No, you see, he did in the meantime. I have to give him credit. There's a a picture he drew called Balvadere. And Belvedere does use the similar idea. So he had he had that independently. Oh. But the idea actually people point out to me that it was done by Oscar Reitersfar, the Swedish artist, and he had a thing very much similar to my possible triangle, which is actually doing with cubes or stacked yeah. up. Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing, basically. Yeah. I hadn't known about it. Actually, I hadn't known about that. Well, well, it's often the case that lots of people come up yeah. with good ideas at the same time. Yeah, well, this is somewhat earlier, I have to admit. But, but it was not, not known to me or, or to Escher at that stage. But Escher did know some of the, um, I mean, there's a Boygo picture of a 
gallows and, and yeah. things that joined up in an impossible way. Clearly deliberate. I mean, people make out, oh, he made a yeah. mistake. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> now, again, this was this was relatively early, right? This was when you were still an undergraduate, or was it a graduate student, or when you were first? I was a graduate student when yes. you had this. Inter- wow, yeah. and, and and it was uh, and that fascination with that. The art, I think, is just, as I say, it's just a beautiful way of combining the fascination with some aspects of mathematics and art, and, and the art. And, well, and the fact I that did, similar things can attract different people. Is a, a, yes, but it was curious. I didn't realize it was cohomology until later. See, this there was oh. a, a television crew, and I can't remember what it was for. It was some, I'm not sure if it was BBC or not. It was a, it was a television crew making a film, and it was... It was about twisters, strangely mm. enough. Much before anybody was physics was interested in twisters. We'll get to twisters. And at one point, I it was very strange because they were doing this thing with twisters. At one point, they said, "What are they actually for?" I'm asking the question now. And I said, "Well, actually, you can use them to solve Maxwell's equations. That's for electromagnetism. Yes, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Wonderful equations." And they said, "Oh, how does that, how does that work?" Oh, I say, well, it involves an idea I couldn't possibly explain. What's that idea? Oh, it's the thing called cohomology. I couldn't explain what it is, I'm afraid. It's not, it's not something mm-hmm. to do. So. so then I went away. And then I remember lying in bed that, that night. I think, my God, yes, I can explain. <laughs> it's just this <laughs> possible triangle. This realization of cohomology. Yeah. I told them, and they never use it, of course. But uh, <laughs> Did you ever write that up or anything in that? Uh, or? Yes. yes, it was written up. I have an article. Because another conference I was at, this was a conference I was at, mm-hmm. in Rome or something. It was in Rome. Because Escher spent a lot of time in Italy. And there was a big thing about Escher conference. And I was supposed to give a talk the next day about, well, I was going to talk about, the triangle and, and cohomology. And I was talking to a mathematician, I wish I could remember his name, the, the, the night before, the evening before. And I was saying that I wanted to talk about this triangle, which is an example of cohomology. And he said, oh, well, what group? Well, it's really the, well, it depends where you put perspective in it. It's a multiplicative group. You know, mm. which is, multiplicative group is the real, positive reals, really. Mm. You're looking at, uh, um, at the, at the, with perspective, otherwise you just mm-hmm. anyway. But anyway, he said, "What other group? Do you do any other group we can do?" It? I, said, I don't know. Well, how about Z two? Well, it might be possible. Well, yes, I guess you can do it with Z two. <laughs> so I, in the lecture, I gave an example of a, of a Z two example, oh. and then I produced other ones, better ones later on. And I have an article which has got it's got all these things. I should send you. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to see that. Okay, that's yeah. then, then. Years later, we're by the way, we're we're almost getting to cosmology. Just so you know, <laughs> uh, or at least, or at least, well, we are. Well, we, yeah. Anyway, but we're we're on the we're on the yes, the yes. pinnacle there of talking about that. But, but, but yeah, cosmology you know, is is the is part of the connection. Yes, we're going. Yeah, yes. yeah, but um, but you came. I want. I can't resist coming back to Penrose tiles. Which, in some sense, is revisiting once again another impossible. It's not quite the same kind of impossible puzzle, but something that seems impossible on the surface. Yes, um, and, and 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 
and you came back to it years later. That was in the 1970s, right? Um, yes. And- that was a slightly different train of thought. And there we go back to Steam and company, because mm-hmm. I had been interested in computability. Uh-huh. I, I had this sort of parallel interest in computability issues. And I think I remembered looking at the mathematical reviews and seeing that there was an example of a, of a tiling problem, which was non, which was came from this study of computability. And I think that was Robert Berger, was it? Mm-hmm. I can't remember. I get the name straight here. No, that was that was not Robert. Robert Berger was the one who first. Yeah. I don't know how, which part of the story I should tell you in what order it was. <laughs> um, but I had this pattern. It came, that came separately from that. I had, a, I had a way of, usually my procrastination was the source of these things, because I was supposed to write a letter to an invitation to give a seminar for one of the London colleges. And I hadn't responded for ages, and I was trying to get down to write this letter. And I, the fact that it was so late was a sort of blockage against my writing it. And I looked at the logo on the, the, the university, and it was this pentagon uh-huh. subdivided into six small, one in the middle and then five going round. You see, that's a simple logo. Uh-huh. And so I wondered, what happens if you iterate that? You put the big one into the little ones, and you blow it up and put that in, and it blows up. Well, you have lots of gaps and holes, and, things. and then you fill these. And I had a way of filling the gaps. And there was a bit of a choice there. Could you do, would you do it this way or that way, A or B way? I did it the A way, which was very lucky, or maybe <laughs> instinctive, I'm not sure what, because a Japanese person had earlier done it the B way, and it didn't lead anywhere. Oh, I you see. If you do it the A way, you get this iteration, and it produces these lovely pictures. So I did it that way, and I produced a pattern. And I really rather liked the pattern. And I had a friend of mine was ill in hospital, and I sent her a copy of this. She was interested in mathematical things, and I thought this would cheer her up, perhaps. So that was just that pattern. That's what it was. Later on, I remember looking at this pattern and just having this, I suppose it's what people call inspiration. I'm not quite sure what. I wonder whether you could force that pattern as a jigsaw puzzle. And I thought probably you could. And this is one of these things, you know, some people say, oh, they have this idea and it's 100%, they believe it's true. Mm-hmm. What percentage would I give? 50, probably. <laughs> I think it's always about 50%. <laughs> it could easily be wrong, but it mm-hmm. has a good chance of being right. So I played around with it a bit, and I realized you needed five versions. You needed three different versions of the Pentagon because they occurred in a slightly different arrangement. Either they had five others around it three others or two others, and this meant that you had a different mm-hmm. way of dealing with them. And so you had six different shapes, which will tile the plane only period on non-periodically. Yeah, I was going to, for listeners who don't know about the tiling, the whole point is the tile, you can tile this plane non-periodically with, uh, in a way that oh, seemed no. to defy many, much intuition about how you could build things. I knew you could tile periodically because I think I had been playing around with certain shapes which you could tile with smaller versions of the same shape and iterate that. And that gives you a non-period time. But you take the shape and you could tile it Mm. periodically. It's not, there's no way of forcing it to be non-periodic. 
So the key point here is that it forces non-periodicity. The only way of tiling with using these matching rules, and the matching rules can be forced by jigsaw arrangements. And I was visiting Cambridge, Oxford, Oxford, sorry. I was visiting Oxford for a conference. It was in honor of Coulson, who I think had just died. I was going to be his replacement as Rice Ball professor, although he'd moved previously into chem professor, he'd become a professor of chemistry. I hadn't taken up my position as yet, but I think it was the year before, or during the academic year prior to my taking up my position there. But I did visit the Institute, Mass Institute, and I talked to Simon Cochin, who was a Princeton mathematics professor, good friend of John Conway's, mm -hmm. and Simon Cochin was telling me about these six tiles of, now I can't, the name's confused, that wasn't Robert Berger, was it? Robert Berger was a, was a student of, of Hao Wang, who had found the, the first non-periodic, mm -hmm. force non-periodic, which used several thousand different shapes. You need seven, these are squares, I think, with colored edges or something, and you needed, in his version, about, confused by who the other chap was now. It's somebody who had gotten the number down to six. This, this was right from, from the number that Robert Berger had originally, thousands. And then he, mm. I think he had got it down to about 109 or something. And the number had got, worked its way down to six. And that was the smallest one that had been found at that level. And I was told by Simon Cochin that this mathematician, whose name has slipped my mind now, um, like to get the numbers down to their minimum, you see. And then here he'd done it with six. And I said, well, I know I can do it with five. <laughs> because I had my six tiles, you see. Uh -huh. And one of the, the, way, the ways, I could glue two of them together. Uh -huh. And you could do it with only five. This wasn't quite so elegant with the five, but I knew you could do it with five. So I said, I know I, know I can do it with five. <laughs> so I went home and fiddled around for a bit. I think this must have been when I was in visiting Cumberton. You said my mother lived with Max Newman. She married Max Newman, who had a house in Cumberton near Cambridge. Mm -hmm. But he, during the week, he tended to live in, still in Manchester, where he was. He did his research there, and then the weekends he came down to Cumberton. I really can't remember very much clearly, but I think I must have been in Cumberton when I realised that you could get the number down from the five I had to four. And I'm quite proud of that. Like, yeah. Well. <laughs> and I thought, after a little while, I thought, well, I wonder if I could do any better than that. And I fiddled around, and I got it down to two. <laughs> and people asked me what my reaction was. I got it down to two. And when I say my reaction, they get a little puzzled by this. Disappointment. Oh. Why was I disappointed? I don't know. You see, I think it's just too easy. <laughs> Surely this is known. This must be. You look in, at the old um, mosaics of the, the old people. Surely you'll see, you'll see this thing here. I don't know if that was the reason I thought. I just thought it was too simple. Yeah, you it's thought you'd solved a really hard problem, and it must have been an easy problem, but it turned out to be an even harder problem. <laughs> yes. I just thought it was too easy. Yeah. That's why I was disappointed. It just seemed too easy. This is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> this is like some darts. 
And then I realized with the rhombuses a little later, the rhombuses came, came second afterwards. Well, did, were you, what was your reaction when you kind of learned that nature, um, <laughs> nature good. incorporated yeah. some of these ideas? Was that, was that a shock, a complete shock, or did you expect that? Well, yes. Well, there is a curious story, which is still a curious story, I think. Mm -hmm. People often ask me, I would give a lecture on these things, and somebody would ask me, put up my hand and say, please, um, doesn't this mean there's a whole area of crystallography? This is way before Sheffman, I should say. Okay. Isn't, is there, isn't there a whole new area of crystallography opening? And my response would be, yes, in principle, you're absolutely <laughs> right. But how on earth would nature do it? Because you need to have a non-local knowledge. You can't do it simply mm -hmm. locally. Yeah. And I give an example where you have this correct tiling, and then there are two alternatives of each end, either a kite or a dart. You can put a, dart, a kite here, and then you can put a kite or a dart there, or a dart here. Oh, no, you can only do it with a dart here and a kite here, not two, whatever mm -hmm. it is, I can't remember. Yeah. And you can't tell. It only goes around way over here, you mm -hmm. see. Yeah. So how would nature, if crystal assembly, as I was mistakenly believing at the time, is like you've got this little ridge and then the mm. atoms join up in the ridge and then the next ridge and they build mm. up. So you can't do it that way. So how would nature do it? And then Paul Steinhardt and I were both at a conference in Israel on something completely different, on cosmology, I think, harmonically it was. And we were both giving talks on something different. I was talking about energy and you know, relativity or something. And he was talking about something about cosmology, inflation probably. And, and he said, I want to talk about you something, something else. And he showed me these pictures that Shetland had shown. And my reaction was, okay, nature has found some way to do it. It wasn't a complete shock. It was a pleasant surprise, I would say. I would say, yes. Nature has found some non-local way of assembling these things, or else maybe it's not quite as accurate as they think. Oh. You could see these pictures were pretty good, and and the, the diffraction patterns were amazing. Yeah, I wondered whether you know you, you nature could build up locally, find an obstruction, but then some due to some fluctuation, overcome that obstruction, and it just came yeah. and 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 and. With enough random trials, you'd 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 appear to have something that's non-local. But I don't you know. See, I think when I say it's a mystery, I think it's a mystery still not resolved, because I think it has to do with the collapse of the wave function. Okay, see? well that's okay. When well, from, when you go from a, a fluid my dog didn't like that. He <laughs> go on. A fluid or a gas to mm. a rigid thing like a crystal it's got to have collapsed because the crystal really does know where its atoms are. Mm -hmm. Whereas the fluid or the gas, these states is going to be something where the atoms are not localized. And so there is a reduction of the state involved in making the crystal. Okay, well, that's, that's an interesting idea. It's, it's, I, I was gonna, I've tr tried to think of the subjects I wanted to avoid, and collapse of the wave function was one um, that w in our discussion today. So um, we can avoid it from now on. Yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, because we could go on about it, but I, I, I wanted to think yeah. about things, I guess, that I think are a little more concrete, or at least, well, maybe we'll get there in a different context, because it may be relevant when we come to the cosmology aspects. Coming back, let, let, let's get to 
I, you know, as I say, I find this fascinating and I kind of wanted to divide this two hours or so into, into, into two parts. And so I want to move now generally from this fascination with puzzles and mathematics and, and, and I knew of your sort of emerging interest in, in cosmology, although I didn't realize it had begun so early. I thought maybe it began when you were, you know, later and when Shama had begun, and so I didn't realize it was so early. But yeah, but what, but what brought you into, and I was going to ask about Twisters, but I think I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to, because we're going on, maybe we'll come back to it, but I was going to ask where Twisters, because I was, I think the first lecture, by the way, I ever heard from you as a student when I was in Boston at MIT, or maybe when I was at Harvard, was on Twisters. And I didn't, I, I admit, I didn't understand most of it at the time. Um, but any, I do remember vividly wondering whether it, uh, I was very interested in mathematical physics at that time. I, I, I sort of moved out of that later on, but always I was fascinated about, well, what new mathematics, every time you discover some new mathematics, what can it relate to physics? And I think that's why I was fascinated by Twisters. But, but, um, when you got involved in physics, your focus went to general relativity. And I'm wondering, you know, you, you obviously had the quantum mechanics experience with Dirac, but whether whether there was, there was the peculiar aspect of the sort of geometrics and, and, and ultimately topology of general relativity that, that attracted you, your interest right off the off the bat. Was that it or was it physics problems that attracted your interest? Well, it was the easiest route into physics in the sense that the geometry was directly there. Yeah, so I could, okay. But let me give you, you see, unfortunately, all these things are little stories which are quite complicated. Well, let me give you this story because it's It's important. fine. Look, believe me, I want to hear the stories. No no apologies. <laughs> it ties up with the interest in algebraic geometry and all that stuff and Hodge's lectures and why they were all over the place and could I make sense of them? And I developed this notation, which was a, this geometrical notation for tensors, basically. Mm -hmm. So I draw, rather than trying to find where this little a is the same as the little a down there and you need yeah. microscopes to see them, yeah. you just draw a line joining them, you see. So I said, no, these are just pictures. These are where you have diagrams and pictures. And I had this way of representing symmetries and skew symmetries. And I learned a lot about that. And the problem that Hodge had suggested, which incidentally I never solved, except showing that it has no solution. <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty <laughs> or, good. Yeah, Hodge didn't believe me when I told him at first. There was no solution in terms of polynomials. You have to take rational functions or something. No, that was that, that was a big he didn't believe me for a long oh. time. It was quite striking. But anyway, no, that's probably why he moved me over to Todd in the, after the first year. Ah. Oh. Because he didn't, I think he didn't believe me. And I only, I knew, I learned he didn't believe me only in my third years. Third oh. year. But did he eventually come around? Yes, oh. because he repeated the calculation. And I remember the expression on his face when he said, you were right all the time. <laughs> <laughs> This is why he moved me on to Todd. I don't know if it made much difference to me because I didn't click with Todd any more than I did with Hodge, really. Yeah. It, but it was important to me because in order to cope with this problem, which was very complicated, when you translate, it had to be tensors. That's the way you look at it. And the, and, and the way you do, do tensors had to be very complicated. And so you had to have this complicated notation of tensors. And so a lot of what I did in that thesis of mine, which is really not so much to do with that, it was a horrible notation. I, I learned the right notation later on. I should have done it that way. It was a horrible way of doing it. So my thesis is not to be recommended. <laughs> read. But um, 
I did, I did this, this, this problem of Hodges where you could solve it in a certain way, but but it, I showed there was no polynomial solution, which is a bit of a shame because it looks mm. as if it should be just playing with the indices and joining mm. them up and so on. But in order to play with these things, I developed this graphical notation. And I realized this was sort of an abstract idea. You could develop tensor ideas which were not realizable in terms of components. So they had these abstract tensors. And the one I liked the best were the minus two-dimensional tensors. They had the nice symmetry and they were beautiful. And you could relate them to the four-color problem and things like that. (laughs) But anyway, it wasn't so much about the minus two dimensions, but but the idea that you could have these abstract things. And then I learned about physics. I was interested in physics and I talked to Dennis about them and the Dirac equation, this wonderful equation for the electron. How do these things work? Well, they involve spinners. What are the spinners? I mean, how can you have a spinner which seems to be a square root of a vector? Mm. That means you take one of these lines and you take your razor blade and split it down. (laughs) (laughs) And there is a curious story here, which I don't know the answer to. Dirac's lectures had two parts. There was this quantum mechanics one, quantum mechanics two. I went to quantum mechanics one when I was an undergraduate. And by trying to fit things together later on, I think it must have been in my first year as a research fellow. Did I say undergraduate? When I was a graduate student. Yeah, you did say graduate. Mm -hmm. When I was a research fellow, and that must have been when I went to Dirac's Quantum Mechanics 2. Ah, okay. In his course, he gave, he deviated from his normal course, and he gave a week's lecture on two component spinners. I had struggling, been struggling with the book that Dennis had recommended to me, which was Corson's book, totally unreadable, full of information, absolutely mm. full of information, but utterly unreadable. I couldn't make sense of it at all. I couldn't understand what spinners were at all from that. The Rack's course, beautiful, made it absolutely clear to me. I could see what they were doing and what they were, and the two component spinners. Mm-hmm. And Dirac had a beautiful paper on two spinners where he looked at all the different spins. Rather than going to all the different cases one after the other, you do the whole thing all at once. It was it was a beautiful paper which influenced me very much. And so I thought two component spinners, my gosh, that's that's something I think I understand now. Then there was the lecture given by David Finkelstein in London when we were both in Cambridge. I was my First, sec- second year, I think, as a as a research fellow, as a research fellow at Cambridge, and Dennis said, "There's this lecture given by David Finkelstein in London. Uh, I think it would be interesting to go to it." So he went to this lecture. This was on how you could go through the Schwarzschild so-called singularity, yeah. and using these coordinates that Finkelstein, we now call them the Eddington-Finkelstein coordinates, because yeah. Eddington used them. Unknowingly, at some early time. <clears throat> but I learned you could go through this so-called horizon, I mean, so-called singularity, and it was really only horizon. So I learned about that. And I was amazed by this. And I remember having discussion with David Finkelstein afterwards where he pointed out we swapped subjects. <laughs> I went into general, relativ- general relativity and he went into combinatorial physics. <laughs> I got the better deal out of that, I think. Yeah, well, it worked. It was. It turned out to be good for you. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> yes. 
Anyway, he, I talked to him about spin networks, you see, which were these uh, I see. And then he taught me about um, like the singularities being not, not R equals 2M at all. Yeah. So I came away from this and seeing there's still a singularity at the middle. And I had wondered, so look, you got rid of a singularity seeming at one place, but you can't, you've got it pushed into the middle now. Is there a general theorem which would tell you uh, you can't get rid of the singularities? I had no idea how you, I said, how on earth would I prove it? I have the foggiest idea. What would I know that most people don't know about general relativity? I've got an idea. How about two component spinners? Uh -oh. I try and see whether two component spinners any use in general relativity. So I did. I looked at that and I think it's amazing. This very complicated conformal tensor, which is mm -hmm. the Val tensor, mm -hmm. becomes this very beautiful, totally symmetrical object, which I understood perfectly because it was only in two dimensions and it's complex dimensions. You could factorize every polynomial and homogeneous polynomial, and this is a wonderful subject. And it was that that it, took me into general relativity in a serious way. Oh, okay. Now, okay, that's a, actually heard of that before. The, the I, I want to put in perspective, especially for younger people who don't realize yeah. it. I mean, this the Finkelstein result was part of an emerging... Can, people don't understand how misunderstood black holes were. That's um, right. Yeah, very at the time, I mean, that people thought indeed that this, that what was now we think of as an event horizon, which is, if you pass through it, you wouldn't know you pass through it to some extent, and and, no. and 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 but it was something singular and represented some some real issue wasn't there. But people also, of course, partly what amazed me, partly until uh, well, you were there before me because I was alive then, but not a physicist, but didn't really appreciate that black holes were inevitable at all, and. And I had heard that Wheeler sort of got you interested. And I think Wheeler's, Wheeler's a, I, I, who I happened to meet when I was young and had influence on me, but he, he had a remarkable influence on a lot of people. But, but it was almost ironic. I had heard that he, Wheeler got you interested in this question. Um, and, it, and again, for historical perspective, as as I've heard you point out, but it, people should know, there, this question of whether black holes were inevitable not mathematically, but physically, was an open question that had been dealt with. For, and, and people had constantly, especially Einstein, had constantly felt it couldn't be because there was something pathological about them. And even when and Einstein constantly uh, didn't believe the results that were showing the opposite, for right sort of beginning with Chandrasekhar, but then with Oppenheimer and Snyder in 1939, which in yeah. some sense should have convinced people, um, it, it was, and that was 1939, but my understanding was Wheeler was an, was a holdout right through till perhaps it was your work that trained, turned him around. But he was a holdout right till the mid '60s. Although ironically, he was the person who we is often credited with giving the name black hole to black holes. He came around the opposite way and became a a cheerleader for black holes. And, right. uh, and so I wonder if you could talk about a little bit about Wheeler's influence on your thinking at the time, or maybe maybe you'd already. Well, there's two things I want to address. One was his influence versus sort of what you just talked about, Finkelstein. And then the other one, which is so important to real, for people to realize, not just that our picture of black holes as being inevitable was not at all the conventional wisdom 
in the 50s and right up until the 60s. But then also to do to to do you justice, the the significance of of, of Penrose diagrams, which in in general relativity at least are as ubiquitous as, as Feynman diagrams are, in my opinion, in, in quantum field theory. Namely, they just change the way people pictured things, allowing you to picture things in a way you couldn't before. And I wanted to ask you, you said that they were there, but you know, these conformal diagrams were always in your head. So those are two questions. I've con, con you know I've convoluted them, but what was Wheeler's influence on you in terms of thinking about what would let, eventually lead to the singularity theorems? And were the the pictures that ultimately gave you, you, you thought about things globally in a way that people hadn't been thinking about general relativity before you in, in terms of these conformal diagrams or, or Penrose diagrams? And had you been thinking about them a long time before as well? So if we can go to those two questions, I'd love, I'd love to follow up on that. Okay, let's it's talk okay. about the conformal diagrams. Okay. You see, takes us back to Syracuse. You mm. see, I, and I was in Princeton. You talked about Wheeler, and he also influenced me distinctly. Mm. I went to, I think I was, I gave up my third year of a fellowship in Cambridge to, to go to the US, primarily Princeton, to work with Wheeler on a NATO fellowship. The NATO fellowship was a two-year fellowship. And I went, well, you see, it was partly, I guess, there was some complication about my wife being, my wife-to-be being American and all that. Oh, okay. Which I think, I won't go into that, all that, but it was <laughs> a big mistake too, but never mind. <laughs> You can't slip into a mistake because they have too many implications, and if you change one of them, it changes the whole everything. Yeah. yeah, everything. So it doesn't make any sense. It, yeah. But anyway, one of the reasons for going there was because uh, my wife, to be at that point, was American. But that I don't know how important that was. I also was interested in working with Wheeler because he was interested in crazy ideas. Yes, so that Wheeler was definitely interested in crazy ideas. And I wrote to him a letter full of my crazy ideas, probably very stupid to think, but Wheeler was all right. But he apparently, was, as I learned later, received this letter and he couldn't make a tale of it. <laughs> and he gave it to Charles Misner, Charlie Misner, to see, is this chap a complete nut or does he make any sense? And I think Charlie Misner said, look, <laughs> this makes a lot of sense. I can't, I can't, I don't know if that fabrication of the story was correct or not, but there was something about it, whether it was Charlie, I think it must have been Charlie. Mm -hmm. um, well, it was an influence on me in, in interesting ways, but uh, but uh, yeah, there were crazy things in that paper, which some of them are still crazy. But uh, well, you but, still like uh, crazy ideas, and we'll get to some of them that I think are kind of crazy. But we'll get there. <laughs> That's true. Now I have to give up on some of them. Yeah. But some of them turn out to be right, which is curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, the wheel of Part of it was to get interested in gravitational collapse and uh, the states of matter, which you could have, which were very concentrated, and there was a limit to what you could do, and Chandrasekhar limit, all these things. Uh, and the Oppenheimer-Snyder collapse did you, model. Did, did you know about Oppenheimer-Snyder? Or, 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 I think I must have learned it during that period in Princeton. Exactly when I picked up on it, I'm not totally sure. But I think 
Again, let, let me let me just step back for listeners. Uh, yes. uh, so the the point was that you know the, people had wondered whether these this ultimate you know stars can collapse to white dwarfs, but then after a certain level they can't. They appear nothing appears to be able to stop them, and then some sense that's what Chandrasekhar had shown. And but there were big quest, but everyone felt something had to stop them. Physics couldn't be that crazy, and. Op, what Oppenheimer and Snyder showed in '39, just before the the war, when Oppenheimer got involved with other things, um, was that if you took a, a very special case, spherically symmetric collapse, that under reasonable conditions, which they thought were reasonable, if the matter had a certain kind of form, which was called pressureless, and that it would that a black what we would now call a black hole was inevitable, and um, and then the the question was. Was it only inevitable because of the simplifications they had made? And it took a long time. I mean, it took, I guess, 25 years before anyone, namely you, <laughs> ultimately resolved that problem. And so that, that problem had been around for a while. And one people wondered whether well, that's nice and that's cute, but maybe there's a way out of it because things aren't really spherically symmetric and there'll be all sorts of complexity. And I'm sure that that led Wheeler to not believe in the Oppenheimer Snyder thing, and and I don't know, and maybe he he let, he he expressed those concerns to you when you were talking to him. I don't know. Yes. Now let's just think. You see, the time we're talking about is is nineteen sixty four, sixty four, sixty four. I was back in in England, and I was in Bur Birkbeck College. Mm -hmm. Now. You wanted to talk about the, the conformal diagrams, but that didn't have much of a role at this stage, except it did in a certain sense, which I could explain perhaps. But it's true, what was more important in all this was the discovery of quasars. Oh. There were these signals coming in from the deep universe, mm -hmm. radio signals, which seemed to indicate there were objects out there which were extremely energetic, producing enormous amounts of energy, more, much more than the, than the entire output of a galaxy. You would need to have more than mm -hmm. But yet these objects, the variations in the intensity, or whatever it was, were of such abruptness, let's say, they varied in such a small time scale that if these were coherent bodies, and since the, it was the whole thing that was varying somehow, they had to be no larger than the solar system, mm -hmm. because you had to think of how long would light take to propagate from one side to the other. Exactly. Um, they couldn't be that big and still be coherent to the level of getting these, these variations which were seen. So there was a lot of discussion, and people were very excited about this. And Fred Hoyle, I remember, and Fred Hoyle and... and, uh, and uh, Oh, well, what was this? Oh, what was this collaborator? Oh, I should remember his name. There was a famous, famous paper by Burbage, the Burbages and Hoyle. And, and, uh, and, was wasn't was Burbage? No, okay. there were two Burbages. There was Margaret Burbage. Burbage. Yeah, yeah, Jeff Burbage, Margaret Burbage, Hoyle. Jeff Burbage and the other one, Hoyle. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> no, it's stupid. The one who actually got the Nobel Prize. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I was going to say, was uh, what's his name? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he was no, nice, I was just, uh, it's in my time, I was going to say the guy who actually won the Nobel Prize and went, for some reason, the other guys, especially Hoyle, 
missed out, which has seemed kind of crazy. But um, oh, what's his name? Isn't that awful? And in fact, I, know when, I know him, but anyway, I know, I know that forgetting somebody's name is infectious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, in any case, yes. the unknown Nobel Prize winner, Fowler, 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 Fowler. Fowler, Willie Fowler. Thank you. You got it before me. Okay. Anyway, yes, that's right. And um, what was I trying to say here? <laughs> uh, I, we both got distracted. Hoyle and Fowler, they were worrying about what on earth. Could, could there be structures so big that they were down at their short short radius, sort of mm. side? That's yeah. what they seemed to be. And there was a lot of confusion about what that meant. And there was also a lot of confusion about whether the redshift was real. Was it really the distance? They were, was this because yeah. these bodies were taking part in the expansion of the universe? and therefore extraordinarily distant, and therefore these signals really were as strong as people thought, or were they a lot closer, and it was really a gravitational redshift instead, or something else, some yeah. other feature. And there was yeah. a lot of discussion about that. But anyway, it was sort of in the air that bodies could be out there of this sort of size, getting down in their Schwarzschild's radius scale, which was, I suppose, what got me interested, what got what got Wheeler interested? He was very excited about this and, mm -hmm. and what would happen. And I think, as you say, there was this belief that the that the Oppenheimer-Snyder model was unrealistic for the two reasons you mentioned. One is everything was falling exactly focused at the center. Secondly, they were what was called dust. There was no pressure, and therefore there's nothing to stop them. So why, if there's nothing to stop them, focused at the center? Obviously, you were going to get an infinite density and therefore a singularity. But it's clearly artificial because they went the closer they got to the middle, the more slight, more that slight deviations would mean they weren't all focused towards each other. They would swish round, and maybe pressure would do make them swish more, and they would swish round and come back swirling out again. This point of view picture was confirmed in quotes by the paper by Lifshitz and Kalatnikov, these two yeah. Russians, who had apparently shown that in the generic case, you would not get singularities. So this was the background I had to think about. Now, for some reason, I wasn't very convinced by Oppenheimer Schneider. I looked at the paper. I did not notice that there was a mistake in the paper, which, there, which was, it was corrected later, I suppose, by Belinsky. Mm -hmm. I hadn't noticed that's a mistake. I didn't look. look oh no, you're not talking about Oppenheimer. Sorry, you mean you mean uh, Lifshitz and Kalashnikov? Yeah, I, meant, yeah, okay. I may have said the wrong name yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Lifshitz-Kalashnikov paper. No, I'm not yeah. talking about Oppenheimer. Sorry, yeah. there's no mistake in their paper. Yeah, it was um, in the Oppenheimer Snyder paper. Yes, in the Lifshitz-Kalashnikov paper, yeah. which I did not find convincing. I thought the techniques they were using were taking too much, making too too many assumptions. Mm -hmm which might not be right. There was something that was not right, but that was different from what I was worrying about. It wasn't that they were, let me just ask, I, I mean, it, it wasn't that they were thinking locally and you were thinking globally in any way. I mean, it wasn't they were focusing were on... Yeah. But the question is, the one question is whether, whether you're allowed to think locally in this problem. Oh, okay. And I think that one of the things that worried me, whether locally thinking was, and I certainly was... I went around, I said, walking in the woods. So we had a nice woods live, live where, I li where I lived. And uh, I used to walk in the woods to try and get inspiration. <laughs> I remember trying to think, 
what it was like falling inside this entity and could a local infinite divergence produce a problem. If there was going to be a problem, it had to be a non-local problem. That was the sort of view I'd formulated. Uh, okay. I didn't know what it was. But then I'd had this paper. You see, there is a relevance to the conformal boundaries, uh, which was sort of incidental, because I had been writing a paper which involved that idea, which I'd put into the Royal Society, more or less simultaneously. I think I put it in a little earlier than the other paper. But in this paper, I had to use the fact that infinity had to have a spherical structure. It had to be like a sphere, like the sphere you see when you look out yeah, at the world. Yeah. Or could it be something more complicated? And part of the argument depended on it being spherical. So I thought, well, any, any sensible person would assume this, and who cares? Just write the paper and send it in. I worried about it. I thought, can one show that it had to be spherical for some reason? And so I worked out, what do I know about general structures? I didn't think, I don't know much. <laughs> but I looked about, I looked at the boundary of, of the future of a point. I think that was what I was looking at. And so I began to get a little bit used to what the boundaries of futures looked like. Uh. And they had certain properties. And so I had this at the background of my mind. I knew certain properties that boundaries of futures had to like. When I say a future, I mean you look at the mm. all take some region in space-time, look at all the points that can be reached, not going faster than light from that initial region, and look at the boundary of that region. What is its structure? What curious features does it have? So I, I got a bit of an understanding of that for this separate reason, which was in purely purely incidental, oh. accidental, too. Okay. Now, at one time, this is a little bit later, I was walking with Ivor Robinson. I, can, I told this story to many people before, but let me tell you it again. He was visiting. He was an Englishman, very English, but the Americans loved him because he had this wonderful English way of speaking, which <laughs> was so different from the way they spoke, and it was poetic and, and musical and, and he, he really did have a, a way with words that nobody else that I knew did have. He had a way with words. And we were walking along, I think Mallet Street or something, near where I worked in mm -hmm. college. And he was talking to me about this, he had a way with words as I say, and also um, didn't want to be interrupted normally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he was talking to me. We come to this side road, which we have to cross. As we cross the road, the conversation stops. We get to the other side, the conversation resumes. After, after a while, he has to go off somewhere. And I go to my office in Birkbeck College. And I have this strange feeling of elation. Why on earth do I have this feeling of elation? So I go through all the things that happened to me during the day. What did I have for breakfast when I got walking through the woods? And did I get on the bus? Did I get on the right bus? <laughs> so on and so forth. And then I get to crossing the street. And the idea comes back to me, which was evidently the idea of a trapped surface. Mm -hmm. This was how you would use the knowledge I had of boundaries of futures and see that there was something odd about the boundary of this notion of what I called a trapped surface. The boundary of this trapped surface would have to be compact because of the 
things I knew about. I'm not quite sure how many of them I did know about at that time. But I realized that this was something I should follow up on. Oh. So when I got back into my office, I sketched out the argument, which became the argument in, in the paper, which got the Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The trap surfaces, which is, which is a global way of thinking about what's inevitable. But it was the idea, don't, don't write down equations. You see, what did people do about general relativity in those days? Either they would look at exact solutions, and either was a real expert mm. You know, you had the little tricks to show you how exact and Roy Kerr. Yeah, sure. In, in the Kerr solution is the and mm -hmm. Ted Newman and in looking at various tricks like this, you know, experts at finding exact solutions. Now I wasn't. Well, I did a little bit in that route, but I wasn't a good particular mm -hmm. expert at that. Um, I was certainly not an expert in computers, and that's the other thing people they put it on a computer. In those days there was yeah. no hope. In any case, you might say there's no hope because when things, parameters start to get very large, you don't know why they're diverging. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a computer problem or something to do with the code or what knows, and who knows if it's really singular. Yeah. Anyway, I don't believe anybody has computed very far into a black hole. That would be an interesting question. Well, I'm dealing with those divergences. I mean, that's been a large part of the work in trying to understand gravitational waves is, is how to deal with those divergences near event horizons. A lot of progress has been made, of course. Yeah. But there, of course, the gravitational waves, you're looking at weak fields. On the hills, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Worry, about, worry about the singularity. But the, the, but the exact nature of the signal and the ringing you have to worry about. Oh, yes. you, you, yes. Taking your computer, you have to oh, yes. go over many scales and that and, 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 and looking, that's, and that's been a, without that, I think that, that progress couldn't have been made without those those. No, that's true. You know, the computers have come extremely important. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree with that. That's right. But in the, for the actual singularity situation, it's not so clear. Yeah, okay. And uh, but what you could show with these global arguments, yes, it had to be singular. Although I've always kicked myself for not using in my paper what Charlie Misner pointed out to me later, that there's a much, the co most complicated part of the argument, which I sort of skirted over in the, in the, in the paper. Um, can be replaced by a much simpler argument, which was, I mean, I knew it, I should have used it already, but Charlie pointed that to me later. Well, did you, did, but the, the, the traps, what, but already thinking of these cones of the, of the, of the sort of, uh, critical, yes. Yeah, uh, were critical for trap surfaces, but you had been thinking about them for a while, or did that, or, uh, or did that just come in the context of the trap surfaces? Now we have to back up a bit to the conformal diagrams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, in my two-year NATO fellowship, <clears throat> I decided that, okay, there was a lot going on in Princeton, and I learned a lot of GER and stuff, but it was one particular perspective, and there was also a lot going on in Syracuse. And I felt that I really needed to be present at what was going on in Syracuse. And so for half my last year, I went actually to Syracuse. Actually, I spent yeah. a little time in Cornell as well at first Syracuse. <clears throat> and there, uh, <clears throat> I got to know Ted Newman much better. I had known him a bit before, but that's, we collaborated together and started working on the spin coefficient notation and things like that. But also, as an important, uh, Andrzej Trautmann visited there from Poland. Mm -hmm. Another well-known. And he gave a talk on the asymptotic properties of gravitational fields. And I think in particular, the fact that the leading term had to be null was, was I think he was the first, I think, to show that. 
And he gave a lecture, which was an interesting lecture, but it was full of complicated calculations. And I thought, oh, I can't cope with this. <laughs> Maybe there's another way of doing all this stuff. And I thought, how about inversions? I don't quite know what made me think of that. And I knew that you could turn a, well, the Riemann sphere, or you get out of the complex plane and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> can you make infinity and define that by inverting? And I started talking to Engelbert Schucking, who was my roommate in Syracuse. He was a big influence on me in oh. two distinct facts, factors. One was I started talking about conformal transformation. I did think about you know inversions for Schwarzschild solution, yeah. and I got put off because you invert and the point of infinity is singular. Mm -hmm. Doesn't work. Oh dear, what a pity. But I did, in the meantime, talk to Engelbert about conformal transformations, and he told me that Maxwell's equations were conformally invariant. I think it, he referred me to a paper which did it only in the special case where you were taking versions and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I did it a different way, and I realized that conformally invariant in the strong way that you can have a conformal factor which is variable. Doesn't yeah, again, for the listeners, conformal invariance in some sense allows you to scale, scale uh, lengths arbitrarily in different ways uh, over space and, and things look the same. I mean, to to be very crude about it. To be more precise, have a look at Escher's circle limits. Okay, yeah. Okay, <laughs> These perfect. are very beautiful examples of conformal yeah. maps. Yeah, yeah. He's got a lot of other ones which use yeah. conformal maps, but the sure. circle limits are the most clear. You just look yeah. at the edge. And there you can see infinity is made into a, into a finite boundary. I was trying to do that with, in, in the space-like sense, looking at the spatial sections. Um, one of the visitors at Syracuse, if I have it right, was Ray Sachs. Mm -hmm. At the time, he was in the army, I think. He had to join the army, the U.S. Army, I suppose. I can't remember. I think he, he learned how to play Go there, I remember. <laughs> he must have been pretty good. He, beat, he was able to beat me at Go, which impressed me. <laughs> um, what was the other thing he did was he had this wonderful result, that you didn't just have the leading term was null, according to Troutman, but if you look at not the 1 over R, but the 1 over R squared, then you have... Three principles. You see, this is something I'd learned from my understanding with spinners, and that you could look at the vial curvature, that's that part of the curvature which describes gravity. You remove the Ritchie part, which is the mass part. The mm -hmm. pure part is represented by the vial conformal curvature. Mm -hmm. And it's got these four principal null directions. They point along the light curve. So you can classify them by how they join, how they coincide. Mm -hmm. In general, they're separate. In the null part, when what Troutman had shown was the leading term out of infinity, they all come together. What Ray Sachs had shown is if you come in from infinity, they peel off one after the other. That is to say, one over r, one mm -hmm. over r squared, one over r cubed, one over r to the fourth, uh. one over r to the fifth. And it was a very beautiful result. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very, very nice. Very striking and beautiful result. That, that's Ray Sachs. His work with Bondi. You see, Bondi had Bondi had looked at the 
axisymmetric case of radiating spaces. And had a, had an inkling as, as to how the energy was described and how it could be the radiation could carry energy away. Troutman had some understanding of this, but not in the full way that Bondi described. But it was axisymmetric. You had to assume that there was a symmetry around an axis. Sachs generalized it so you could remove the symmetry altogether. And he had this result about the curvature, the peeling off property, as he was calling it. I was very impressed with this. I remember being at home back in England, in Stanmore, and where I used to live, in the basement where I had my private, uh, used to be a, meant to be a garage, but it, <laughs> it was so badly designed, nobody could get into the garage there, but I used it as my study. <laughs> Having drilled through the, uh, through the um, attic, through the ceiling, which was made of uh, this poisonous substance. Uh, was Asbestos? Asbestos, that's right. With no knowledge that this was very dangerous and you should no way drill through it or hacksaw through it, which I did. I made, I made a little trap door up into the house. This <laughs> is my way of isolating myself from what was going on there, which was a good thing to do. Um, anyway, thinking I had my nice big blackboard down there, and it, the thought came to me, I've been going the wrong way. I've been going out in a spatial direction. If you go in a null direction, mm -hmm. out from the light cone, you, it doesn't go infinity. Well, you see, what it, the, the thing is that things go as a different power of, of, the, of the radius. Mm -hmm. One over r and one over, one over r squared and one over r. And I hadn't realized it was this different power. And that made everything finite instead of infinite. And if you're in... Vile curvature is finite in infinity, and you look at the different components, and they peel mm. off. That's exactly the peeling property. It's just saying that the curvature is finite on the boundary. And so yeah. I began to realize looking at these conformal boundaries was a fruitful thing to do. And then it's just a way, it's funny how, you know, and well, I guess it's the way it is. You had the right tools randomly yeah. from different places just happened to come together at the right time. That's and, right. And, and ultimately produced something which changed changed and 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 by the way and by the way to be fair though it wasn't just that they did just not just change that paper as i said before they changed things i i like the quote from kip thorne who said that you know you revolutionize the tools of and i i certainly you know thinking in terms of what i call penrose diagrams and what most people do now um uh, do change the way you think. I mean, you know, Feynman pointed out, you can think about thing, the same thing many different ways. And sometimes mm. for certain problems, thinking about it one way is more fruitful. And for other problems, thinking about it one way is, uh, is more fruitful. And, and in, in the case of thinking about general principles that don't rely on specific things like spherical symmetry, thinking in, in, in these conformal pictures gives you a, well, certainly either way, uh, both for black holes and, and, and we'll now finally get to the other aspect of cosmology thinking about far future and far past conformal tools are very useful and and obviously they drive your thinking right now before i i do get i want to get to your the modern thinking of the far future and far past that you're thinking about which i will say in advance i i find i don't think are right but 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 at least i don't smell right to me but but in any case i i do i, I want to leave that till near the end because i'm fascinated by these things and i didn't want this to be sort of back and forth about what whether we agree or disagree about certain things but before we get there i'm intrigued by the fact that of course the the, the penrose singularity theorem 
later, very shortly afterwards, and I don't want to spend a lot of time because people focus on Stephen Hawking a lot. But um, who, who we, but you know, you, 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 it was it's sort of almost obvious that what that there's another important singularity in 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 the world, and 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 it's not just in black holes. It's in principle at the beginning of the universe. And I was surprised in a way that you didn't um, think or at least incorporate that in the original paper. If unless I'm maybe there was an offhand remark about it, um, but I'm wondering what why you didn't and what uh, uh, um, and it was just you were so focused on that particular problem or or hadn't started to think about the other aspects of cosmology yet at that point. I think there was the feeling I had that once having shown that the singularities were, gener were generic in collapse, that they would clearly be generic in a Big Bang universe. So, so you just thought it was so obvious it wasn't worth mentioning. <laughs> Is that, maybe I'm... A... <laughs> That's a way of putting it. I'm not quite sure I thought my thought processes were quite like that. It is sort of like that, though. but you see, Stephen Hawking picked up on this in a serious way. I had the yeah. I, the story, in, well, of course, the movie is, is claims that I gave this talk, and, and uh, movies are movies. Yeah. And he was present at this talk, which he wasn't. He, the, the lecture I gave in London, I did give a lecture at King's College. This was in late in 1964 when I had the argument. I, I hadn't got the publication. I don't know whether I'd written the paper at that point yet, I'm not sure. Hmm. I would remember being very pleased, not that Stephen Hawking was there because he wasn't, I didn't know anything about Stephen Hawking, hmm. but, but J.L. Singh was there. Oh, John, the, yeah, the general relativist, which was book I first learned general relativity from. In fact. I was so pleased he was there because he looked at general relativity in this geometrical way and I, that's, I, I loved it. So he was the person from whom I learned a lot from GR, absolutely. Yes. And anyway, that's not very relevant. Um, but but Stephen had picked up on this and, and eventually pushed it. Well, in, yeah, I, I, Dennis persuaded me to give a repeat, so I did give a repeat early in 1965, and uh, Stephen Hawking was present at that lecture. And more importantly, I had a private session with him and George Ellis. See, Stephen and George were trying to do something much less general in singularities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bang. And I'm not sure whether Brandon Carter was there. He certainly was part of the story. But um, Stephen picked up on it very quickly and applied actually my actual theorem to cosmological situations. So his first paper was a Fitzgerald Letters paper, which, mm -hmm. which reversed at the time. And you had to, the point was that I needed an assumption that the initial surface was non compact. There was this conflict between the non-compact initial surface and the compactness of the boundary of the future of the trapped surface. And that, mm. that's where the singularity theorem comes in. You need that conflict. And if you don't have the compactness, the non-compactness of the initial state, then you, you can't prove the theorem. Mm -hmm. So if you had a universe that was closed, then how do you do it? But Stephen used it in a way in reverse time direction, in a way I hadn't thought of. This was looking at the, at the microwave background, early stages of the universe. Mm. It did become the basis of our much, much later joint paper that we wrote, uh, where the, he, he then developed the ideas with discussions with me from time to time, but they were primarily 
with people in Cambridge, Brandon, I think, was a big factor, correcting mistakes and things like that. Oh, this, even was a little bit sloppy in his arguments. But these were mistakes of the first kind rather than mistakes of the second kind. <laughs> By the first kind, I mean those that you just change the argument a little bit and it comes correct. <laughs> those of the second kind are the ones that completely wreck the whole thing. <laughs> Fortunately, they were mistakes of the first kind. But they were corrected. And, and this, this story sort of went on, even right up to his, his thesis, which had mistakes. And I think I found about five of them in the thesis. And I was going to point them out, and he'd found them all by the time of the yeah. <laughs> dissertation uh, examination. Yeah, no, I, okay. Yeah, well, his arguments were fine. I mean, he, he certainly developed these things very much. I just didn't bother. Mm -hmm. I thought I was probably working on twister theory. So I wonder why yeah. I want to work with ideas on twister theory. And I, yeah. okay, singularities are generic. We know that. Okay, it would be nice to have a proper theorem for Big Bang, but uh, which is eventually this paper we had. Yeah, so oh. Stephen pushed it, but you, you, your interest was, yeah, as you say, a little bit elsewhere. In fact, it's interesting because right after this, I have the question about twisters, but I, but that's the question I'm not going to talk about because I want to get, I want to get, uh, uh, yeah, because uh, um, uh, it was clear that you were interested in them at the time. But in any case, but 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 I want to. So so Stephen had, had taken it and pushed it back to the to the key question of 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 a, of, a, of the existence of a singularity. Yes, and the Big Bang and the non of non-avoidance of such the fact yes. that that classic the fact that classically you, there was a there is no way of avoiding a singularity uh, classically in yeah. in a big bang and and of course the question many of us have in some sense the same question people might have had about a black hole was well you know can quantum mechanics get around that and 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 i think there are different viewpoints on that um uh, i'm of the type that prop i suspect that the answer is yes and that quantum gravity will allow us to get around it but but this leads to your fascination with cosmology both in the far future and the far past which brings us more to the present and you have been one of the most um well most of one of the well, most well known and to some extent vocal um holdouts against what has been for become for most people the standard pi picture of cosmology which involves this thing called inflation which yes, yes. which um which says which you know again i'm not gonna we don't have neither the time nor the probably inclination to 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 do a whole show on inflation right now but but which basically says that the standard big bang model has a bunch of paradoxes and there are, and what is fascinating for me about inflation, and always has been, um, is that is that um, it, it involves physics well below the Planck scale. It involves the kind of physics that you don't have to speculate about. Oh well, maybe maybe this miracle happens or that miracle happens. In particle <laughs> physics, it's a natural phenomenon that there are phase transitions, as we would call them now, in the universe, and uh, under certain fairly general conditions, a phase transition will will inevitably happen that will cause the universe to expand dramatically and and exponentially in general and that if that happens for some short period it will resolve a number of the paradoxes in fact of of uh, of the standard model of cosmology and moreover it was later understood after alan guth had first recognized that the three what were then the three miracles of inflation but people don't often talk about monopoles anymore but there were th there were a bunch of paradoxes why the universe appeared to be so flat um 
uh, why, in some sense, there was so much entropy, and 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 also why um, these objects called magnetic monopoles didn't exist. But but later on, there was a, a another result, which in some ways has almost become more important, is that it allowed you a meth a, a, a calculational mechanism to say that the fluctuations we see in the universe today, which are very small, back in could were calculable and could be due to nothing other than quantum mechanics. So a really, in my opinion, a beautiful result. Um, not in your opinion, I think. But but um, and so, uh, the, but the great thing is it doesn't rely on going all the way back to t equals zero. In some sense, and I don't want to play up the analogy too greatly, but I remember actually when Alan was talking to you in the program I was watching, he pointed out that inflation isn't a theory for the origin of the universe. It's a theory for what happened after the universe origin. It reminded me of the statement that Darwin once made, you know, or that people, that, that evolution is not a theory of the origin of life. It's a theory of what happens after life. Because the hard part is what gets life going. And the easy part is natural selection in a sense. But, um, <laughs> And and I kind of think of that way too. Inflation happily obviates that that burning question about what happens at t equals zero, which is a question that obviously has intrigued you more. And you've you and and your argument against inflation, which is really what I want to get to. There are a few of them. Is that somehow it requires very special conditions in the early universe? That it's not as generic as it seems. Um, I think you would say. To be Absolutely. fair to and and that it requires and you focus on this on on what's on entropy which is a a subtle and beautiful concept so subtle that the person who developed entropy killed himself because we wouldn't believe it in some sense boltzmann um oh, but <laughs> but uh but um and then later on um um uh um paul um Ernfest killed himself also who was a who was a uh, who was a, um, a disciple of Boltzmann so it's had a long history I, <laughs> yeah in fact one of my favorite lines in a book I think by um Goldstein uh, uh is a book and uh, I forget who but it who it's a book on 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 uh, condensed matter physics and it, it talks about entropy and it says the noble history Boltzmann did this he killed himself Aaron Fest thought about this he killed himself now it's our turn to think about it <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and it's I love that line but yeah. um uh <laughs> but you're you you know your point is that somehow it requires extremely low entropy low low uh, and entropy, in some sense, one can think of as as um, disorder. It requires a very low disorder in the gravitational field early sure. on. Yeah, yeah, or another way of saying it is, it requires some smooth, some smoothness in the universe. That everything that you think about when you think about collapse um, defies your understanding of what collapse of what the early universe should look like, which you think should be incredibly messy. Cause if you think of the final stage of collapse, it's, it's incredibly messy. There's curvature, there's all sorts of garbage. And, and how can an early universe be smooth enough to have inflation happen? So have I, have I capsulized your, your concern accurately? That's accurate. It's not put as quite as forcefully. Well, I wouldn't expect as I would put it. Yeah. Okay. You see, it's been a conundrum which has worried me for a long time. And for some reason, I look around and nobody else seems to be worried by it. But yet, to me, it's been the huge conundrum. I remember, this is, I don't know, I shouldn't tell that story. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's, okay, let's skip that one then. Um, 
Unless you really want to, it's your, it's your, it's, it's one of my Feynman stories. <laughs> oh, well then I'll, I'll, since I wrote a book on Feynman, I'm always happy to hear about Feynman stories. So send you my book on Feynman sometime. I'm very happy with that. Okay. Book. Now I have about four Feynman stories. I won't tell you all of them, mm. but this one I have to tell backwards because I learned later. I was giving a talk in Caltech about the second law of thermodynamics and cosmology. And I can't remember what the title was or something it was bringing those topics together. And I learned later that Feynman had seen the notice about this lecture, and he had told some colleague of his, oh, I'm going to go into this lecture and I'm going to heckle. I'm going to heckle this guy. Uh -huh. Okay. If you like to do. Yeah. That's, oh, absolutely. So this is the beginning of the story. Okay, I start giving my talk, and I come to what the talk's about in a minute. I start giving my talk, and I come to a certain point where somebody... See, the, the room is not all that full, but there's Feynman over here and someone way behind him with somebody else. This person behind Feynman, I assume, is some Nobel Prize winner because Cal Tech is full of them. Yeah. And he started heckling, not Feynman. He started heckling. Yeah. Feynman turned around and he said, you shut up. Listen to what the guy's saying. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, I Perfect. should tell you what it was saying, you see. The point I was making, which I hadn't really appreciated up to that point. See, people talk about the microwave background curve, and there's a beautiful curve, and, the, and they mm. put the error bars for the temperature. Yeah. Being, yeah. And, you, and they're magnified by a factor of 500. Yeah. They're really, yeah. they're really hugging the curve to within the incline. Let me point out, I think it's still true that the best black body curve in nature, is, it's never been reproduced on Earth as 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 um as faithfully as the universe does i don't think we've ever produced a black body which is the canonical picture of an object at a finite temperature uh, in, in quantum mechanics and i don't think it's ever been reproduced in a laboratory on earth as as effectively as the universe did it that's interesting yes i see yeah. i didn't quite realize that but anyway you see this absolutely beautiful plank curve what does that tell you it tells you you're looking at thermal equilibrium yes you go back and back and back in time and back and back and back until the earliest thing you actually see maximum entropy surely the second law of thermodynamics says it should be small i mean it's such an obvious 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 point why don't people talk about it and stress it well you know what let me let me give you the counter well okay, okay. let me give you my <laughs> counter argument coming at it relatively late well, first of all it, um why would one expect otherwise this time i sent my, my i if i come thinking about it as a particle physicist which is originally my training although yes, my that's thesis the problem. <laughs> well maybe the problem although my thesis relates to something that i want to get to you in a second which i think is another argument about why the early universe it's not a problem at all about um generating entropy but i mean Reaction rates are fast compared to the expansion rate. You would expect to be in thermal equilibrium. It's the natural, oh, the, it's the rare violations from thermal equilibrium that have caused interesting things to happen in the universe, which yeah. is why you and I are here having this conversation is those rare violations that have allowed us to happen. But thermal equilibrium should be the norm in a sense, if as long as interactions are fast I compared to the expansion. Yes, but our universe is not the norm. We've got we've got an entropy which is not at its maximum. Well, so where does it go? Starts from the top. You know, what was it? 
I've reached the top and <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's but a line. Yes. Well, it's but yeah, but we, we you know we're just going to go to another maximum that's larger and and ah, you see, there's the mistake in thinking okay. that that your expansion of the universe is going to make it bigger. There's more entropy, room for entropy as the universe gets bigger. That's the theory. No, as as gravity begins to be partly because ah, of negative ah. specific heat, as gravity begins to operate effectively, I mean, and become black holes. I mean, we're already both on the same wave. Okay, go on. I, I won't interrupt. No, it's gravity. That's right. Yeah. I mean, gravity was not thermalized. Yeah, gravity wasn't thermalized. But again, okay, but why would you expect it to be? Gravity is the weakest force in nature. Why should it be thermalized until late in the universe? Why should you expect it? It's it's irrelevant. <laughs> no, 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 no. It has to start off low. Yeah, it has to start off low. But uh, but but the point is, let there be a universe in which the degrees of freedom and gravity were not excited. That yeah, but. But oh, but okay. Look, let but let's say let's get to inflation. I mean, the point is no, no, no. that you the don't need. Yeah. It can be you can have a crazy universe, but as long as isn't as long as there's a, some small enough region where it isn't that crazy, which is kind of inevitable in a in a, in, in, in uh, ultimately, um, you're going to get inflation. And and the and the one point that I didn't see you emphasize in in when I saw you talk with Alan, which I think is really important. When it comes to calculating probabilities, because I know you've calculated how improbable it is to to get such a small reason, but exponentials are wonderful. And the point about inflation is not that it'll just inflate long enough to create a universe that we see. And why isn't it half as big and or a quarter of a big? But it doesn't go away. The hard part of an inflation is getting it to stop. And therefore, if you have a small region that's going to inflate, inevitably. Because of that exponential expansion, which is in general eternal because it can't percolate, mm -hmm. if you find yourself, no matter how small it is, because exponentials are exponentials, you're inevitably, if you look at space, space is going to be dominated by regions that have inflated because of the fact that that event. I, that's the argument I don't understand why Alan didn't bring up with you. Inevitably. But it doesn't uh, work. Why? Well, I mean, I just mark and it doesn't work. I mean, it's. I, I don't know why. I, I use the argument. I think I, the strongest argument is probably in fashion, faith, and fantasy, mm -hmm. not reality. And I do talk about this, and I can't see why you don't have an inflation which maybe, okay, give us our galaxy if you like. Why do we need all those other ones way over there? I mean, we don't need them, do we? I mean, maybe they. What's, what's well, the use of the, of the Andromeda galaxy to us? Well, it could be, it could be, it, many things, I suppose. It could be that we might be an outlier and therefore you need lots of them in order to get, in order to get one that, 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 that varies enough to be us. I mean, that, you know, there's a hundred billion of them and that allows for... for, for but that's the trouble, you see. You, the, this God has made all these useless universes out there not doing anything for the natural selection which evolved on the Earth. It, okay, give the whole galaxy if you like. I don't really think we need most of it. But it has to be fairly calm. Probably you need most of it in order to get the stars initially, and in order to get the iron up, in order to get the heavy elements up enough, to have enough supernovae to get past, the, to, get, to get enough stuff for you and me. Inflation is, is terribly wasteful, you see. It's trying to produce all this entire universe that, it's really an anti-anthropic argument, so I, maybe I shouldn't go into an anthropic Well, argument. I mean, but I mean, but the point is that 
wasteful uh, is in the eye of the beholder in some sense, because you might say that about the human genome too. There's a lot of it, but, but, but the point is that it does, universe doesn't care whether what's wasteful or not. I mean, it's not trying, the purpose of the universe isn't to have life. There's no purpose. And, and yeah. so it's, it, so if, if, if it's wasteful, related to the things that you care about, who cares? That's what you care about, but the universe doesn't give a damn. I think that's, mis that's misrepresenting what I'm trying to say. Oh, okay, sorry, good. I, probably because I misrepresented it. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, good. Because I, no, I purposely I'm, don't want to misrepresent you. Okay. No, I think it's, it's somehow using an argument of this sort to, I mean, you say that, that, that the reason, uh, I've forgotten where we started now, uh, the reason that the entropy was low or that the, the entropy is low in gravity was because it needed to be in a place where for us to be around, you needed to have a part of the universe of that nature. Well, I guess, I guess, I guess I don't think of it. I think that's too teleological. I guess I'm thinking the point is physics, things will, anything that can happen, that can happen, will happen. That's a really important property in physics, right? Yeah. Anything that can, especially in a universe that's old enough, but, but in general, anything that can happen that isn't impossible is going to happen. Okay. And so mm -hmm. there will be a region that will inflate because inflation is kind of generic when it comes to thinking about the physics of the early universe. And um, once it does, sp space, and I mean space well beyond our universe, the multiverse, if you want to call that, if you ask where where is it likely to put your finger down, it's going to be in a place that's inflated and maybe still inflating because once it happens, everything else goes by the wayside. It just becomes this cancer that, if you want to think about it, that 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 goes on forever, exponentially increasing regions of the universe in this false vacuum state. And no matter what you do, you can't get rid of it. But why does it do it all globally in the whole universe rather than just locally? Because, uh, because it has to do it a uniform way, it has to know exactly when to turn off. Well, right uh, no, no, but that's the point. It doesn't have to know exactly when to turn off. It, in principle, it never turns off. Locally, it turns off. Yes, Boom, locally, and you get a hit, and, and you get, locally it turns off. But inflation's already done its business by that point. And locally, you get this hot big bang after inflation. But inf yeah. inflation yeah. is still happening in most of what you would call the multiverse, and it's kind of you can't get rid of it. It's not a matter of of why is it there in some sense it's if once it happens it's it's like a cancer in a sense if you maybe maybe that's a good analogy for you because you probably think it's a cancerous idea but but uh but once it happens you're stuck but it shouldn't happen so uniformly global i think you see let's not i don't know perhaps one shouldn't go into all this you see i'm worrying about the dissimilar dissimilarity between this picture and what happens in collapse. Yes, I understand. Gravitational is absolutely different. Yeah, and I've read, and you discuss, I should say in your new book, I mean, I've read your new book in anticipation of this. So, and you talk about that in, in great detail. Um, and and yeah. I, so I, I worked through your new book. And, and so if people are interested, they can look at that. Anyway, go on. So when you say my new book, you mean Fashion, Faith, and Fantasy? Well, I don't know what the new book. The one I forget the name of it now. Um, is that no, what it is? No, I thought it was the one where you, the some where you describe your new oh, picture. The oh, really yeah, new book. Right. Cycles of time. Yeah. Cycles of time. Isn't that the newest? Is there another one? Is isn't that the newest? I think you could be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's. I mean, I wanted to look at the way you, because yeah. I've always said. I try to do people justice, especially when I'm going to talk to them on this. And so I'd kind of dismissed CCC 
for some time because it just didn't smell right to me. And I thought it's not fair. So I wanted to read your yeah. book to, 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 to learn should, about it. And yeah, I, I went through it in detail. Anyway. Good. No, no. I th I'm glad to hear that because most people have never looked at the book. Well, I, I think you can't criticize. Well, I mean, I can criticize ideas offhand in my office without having without knowing what I'm talking about. But generally, I like to think that if I'm going to do it in a form like this, I should yeah, at least. No, have, no, I respect that point of view very much. And I, I appreciate that. No, I, I think I mean, it should, the book needs rewriting. That's yeah, clear. I think so. Mm -hmm. But but that's it's one of the three books I have to be writing now. And how am I going to write three books all at once? I, I kind of sense that it, it was core dump for you. You wanted to get the ideas out. And also, because you were you, the editors were afraid to say, no, no, you really need to, you really need to do say it another way. And that's what my assumption was. But I, well, but clearly I it was, it was not, it, I don't think even these observations of the circles was present there, was it? No, because that's right. No, I must, there must have been something because they were in the little story. There's the boy looking at the rings. Yeah, yeah, got, yeah. There's, there's discussion of the circles. So there must be some indication, but the, the fact about them, no, nobody was believing a word of it at that time. Yeah. And I think for some reason, because because I uh, don't think Bahe had, you couldn't trust, well, it's not quite clear what you could trust and you couldn't. There's a lot of stuff you I can trust. That's yeah, still so, true, I think. Yes, no, that's absolutely true. And, and have been ignored and still being ignored. But then you see the Polish group got in and they found completely independently and doing different methods and all that, and they see these things. Still yeah, and the question whether you see them and the whether I, I don't want to get uh, partly I don't want to get broiled in that debate. You know, whether you see these things yeah. you may think are remnants, which I'm still not are con I'm still not convinced are generic for maybe what reasons we'll get to. Or and but even if they're there, whether they're significant and they really differ from inflation, there's debates about that, and and it's I, I don't I'd rather avoid it right now. I want to I want to go to the heart of the argument. Which is why one is driven yeah, to this. Right. But the heart of the argument is not addressed by inflation. And the heart of the argument is that the singularities in collapse are utterly different from the Big Bang. Okay, well, let's go back and look at another argument. I, I gave one argument for why I think inflation is is so not only so generic, but so overwhelming that you can't get away from it. And it and it does what you need to do in a calc way. But let's go back to another one, which is, you know, classical singularities are nice, but Many of us, my, uh, well, I'll speak for myself, but I think it's fairly uh, fairly common, think that quantum effects, you, you know, you can't go all the way back to singularity. And and I'm actually, I, I actually, I don't know if I said this in public, but I remember when I was a graduate, when I was just had got moved to Harvard after being a graduate student, I actually uh, did a calculation, which I found out my Alex Vilenkin was doing at the same time. Um, and I never published it at the time. I was working with a friend in Affleck and I thought, okay, well, it's, not yeah. worth publishing, but but the idea that quantum mechanics can allow creation of universes in principle um, is something, of course, I've written about. I've written a whole book, The Universe from Nothing, about this, and I find it I find it inevitable and fascinating. Yeah. But um, it, it's a way to create to to avoid that question and obviate that question and say we don't have to go back to singularity. Quantum mechanics can create a universe with properties that are not that are that are not surprisingly um perhaps appropriate for the initial what you might call the initial state of our universe and and yeah i think you've gone back to a state you say that you haven't really quite gone back to the big bang you've yeah. gone back to some early stage before inflation has even started you yeah know, right? you have, I've, I've gone back from literally what i would call nothing and the, the philosophers have debated yeah. whether it's really nothing but i don't i think that's just semantics but no no universe no space time 
to suddenly creating a space-time. And if quantum, if gravity is a quantum theory, you will have space-times that come spontaneously into existence. That's should be since the since the variable, the quantum variables are space and time. Why if you're going to have fluctuations, you should have a fluctuation that creates a space-time. An unlikely one. Was that? Why is it such an unlikely one? Because you see, in the big in the collapse, you have these singularities, and they seem to represent some kind of end. Now, I'm sure, quantum yeah. gravity, and I used to think like everybody else, that quantum gravity comes in, well, it probably does. What good does it do you? I mean, it doesn't. Let me let let, let me tell you what good it does you, and I and I will allow you. Uh, this is a chance for me to talk about my thesis. And, okay. my, and the physical review of letters that I've written on, which may have a, a citation, I'm not sure. But um, but I asked the same question, and I, here's an example. I thought, well, look, if you're going to spontaneously create stuff, then it seems to me what you're going to spontaneously create is a, is a system that's much more likely. And if I have small regions, this, and I'm going to spontaneously pop into that, I'm not going to create something that's uniform. I'm going to create a black hole surrounded by radiation because in fact the entropy is much larger right and 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 so therefore i suggested that if 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 you created all these regions you'd have all these primordial black holes and they'd evaporate it was actually just before inflation it was my way of creating a lot of entropy in the universe Not even black holes are white holes white well uh, well no they can be black holes which will evaporate because because it turns out in a re interestingly enough if you know this and if the region is small enough then a black hole will be in thermal equilibrium with the region. It, it, once it expands beyond a certain size, the black hole will suddenly become unstable because if the volume is less, I think, if the black hole is more than two-thirds the size of the volume, I forget the number, it turns out that specifically being what it is, the black hole more, and you, as the black hole radiates, more energy will go back in than out. And so it, as the region expands, only after it's a certain size will the black hole become unstable. But anyway, the, my point was it was a way to generate entropy, and I, and the and inflation generates entropy beautifully. So I don't see you that want generate, you want to get rid of it. The point is the entropy is so low. No, you want to generate, you want to create entropy and huge amounts of entropy and matter. So whatever's there in gravity seems irrelevant. I mean, you, the whole point about our universe is it's hot, right? And why is it hot and not cold? That was the problem that particle physicists asked. Why do we live in the universe with a billion photons for every every proton? That seemed like a, a strange and crazy, I mean, to you it wasn't strange and crazy, but it was a strange and crazy question, I think, that led most particle physicists to start thinking about cosmology. Why are we in a hot universe? Which, from your point of view, is saying, so the puzzle for us is why is the entropy of matter so great, not why is the entropy of gravity so low? It's a different that's way of people, That's a different argument. Yeah, and that, but, 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 but quantum mechanics seems to do that very well. It just, and and it autom and 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 it automatically, in some sense, does it in a way that that that, that ensures that curvature is small. Where's the time asymmetry in any of this? I don't see it. I mean, you've got this these horrible things which come up in black holes, and we don't, of course, know in detail what happens. But it's so different from what our universe is like. I mean, to me, it's just that we haven't got the right theory. We're talking about the early universe in ways that we could talk about the remote universe, but we get the wrong answer because the remote universe in the remote future is completely different. It isn't like this at all. There you do have the gravitational waves, gravitational degrees of freedom dominating. 
they run right ahead of everything else. They dominate completely. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because, oh, sorry, I don't want to, uh, because, no. because in some sense, the whole point of cyclical, uh, of, of, of conformal cyclical cosmology, I think I got it right, CCC, um, <laughs> is, that, the, the, is that ultimately the late universe does look like the early universe in your picture. They're one and the same, in a, in a sense. And, 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 and so in a sense, it seems to me you're trying to do with a picture which relies on physics we don't yet know in some sense. But only um, at a tiny little spot, it's only in the Hawking points. Yeah, well, I don't know. There's a whole. If I list, you know, I so my old friend, I, Mike Turner, <laughs> Mike Turner, I think said you're allowed to have one tooth fairy in your cosmological model, and I tried to write down what I thought were the tooth fairies, which I counted five in in in, in CCC. One was, um, um, in some sense, that quantum gravity is not relevant at the beginning, but but also the black holes destroy all that entropy um, by. Uh, you know, that's a that's another I mean, that's a supposition, but it's a tooth fairy. I mean, it's you, you require in order for your late universe to look like, uh, 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 you know, you get rid of all that gravitational entropy in the in the final stages of a black hole singularity. So you require that you require. It seems to me also that particle masses might decay without any evidence of that. Um, in some sense, you require. Um, that lamb to be fine tuned for reasons. So you require a large number, oh, and, so, yeah. and, 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 and you know a large number that allows lamb to, to be a small number today. Uh, you know this n to ten to the twentieth, which you say lambda can be that to the fourth sixth power or something like that. Um, and you require don't you require a massive scalar field at some a very massive which you later on you put to be dark matter. So you kind of require and you require. Well, there's, no, there's no tooth fairy there. That's the, that's that's necessary. But it's necessary. What I'm saying is, is you, you oh, no, have. What I mean, it's not. It's, it's, it's that's not. That's not a tooth. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I'll give you that one. But in some sense, you acquire avoiding. It, it's. It's. I guess what I'm thinking is, you kind of say quantum gravity solves the problems in the late universe of gravitational entropy, and and it can do it because of your of of black holes can do strange things. But if you say that, why don't you just say quantum gravity solves the problems in our universe? And quantum gravity, for reasons we don't know, produces in a beginning a universe that has low entropy. I mean, it's almost the same thing. You're just pushing the problem to the end of one universe instead no, of I saying it happens at the beginning of another. I don't think that's at all fair. Okay, Is maybe. You, and I, I'm glad. I, and I'd like to hear why. Almost the entire crossover from one to the next is, is not. Okay, you do need... A mass fade out, which is a big assumption, and I always said that. However, it is based on something which is part of mathematics, namely mm. that the first thing that you do in quantum in particle physics, more or less, is look for the Casimir operators of the Poincaré group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the one these are mass and spin, so you yeah. say these are absolutely conserved quantities. Now, what I'm saying is that this is only approximately correct. Because the right group is not the Poincaré group, the Sitter group. Mm -hmm. Because the cosmological constant, the, the one that we normally refer to, not one in inflation or something. The yeah, real the real one. The real one, <laughs> the one that Einstein um, mistakenly introduced into it. Yeah. The one that I'd say the one that comes automatically from quantum field theory, but again, it's my thinking that you know you can't get yeah, away from you can't get away from the vacuum having energy. Something. Maybe it has to be there for some other reason, but uh, it's certainly observed to be there. So, so yeah, so, so it's not a tooth fairy. The fairy, yeah, is, oh, absolutely, it's there. It's a big, 
I'm trying to say that there is that term. And if you take the view that the group actually, at, which could be relevant in cosmological scales, is the decider group rather than the Poincaré group, it's not so surprising that mass is not cons absolutely conserved. It's not saying it is the case in this exactly this way or that way. I agree that's missing. And I so I've always said that's missing. But on the other hand, it's not such a tooth fairy because it's already said that you've got to have something if you're going to accommodate the cosmological constant into your particle physics. It's okay. just not shown up in, in most. Yeah. Things. Okay. I mean, it's well, it's well motivated in the context of what you want to do. I'm not arguing it isn't. I'm just saying it's something you kind of have well, to introduce. Well, I, well, I think the, the one tooth fairy that bothers me the most. I think. It, well, I don't. I mean, it may be true. <laughs> is this insistence that all of that extra entropy that's generated, the gravitational entropy that's generated in the late universe, disappears? Because no, no, it goes, it falls into black holes, and then black mm -hmm. holes destroy it, and and it they don't emit it. It doesn't come out of the black hole, and and that's required, right? That's really required. Otherwise, the late universe, your late universe, doesn't look like the low entropy universe you really need to be the beginning of the next universe. Well, it does yes. No, you see, most look at the conformal picture. It's almost entirely the the. the junction to the next eon is almost entirely smooth. That is the, the all the, the effect of a, of a taking galactic cluster, what happens? It gets swallowed, probably mostly anyway, by a supermassive black hole. That thing stays around for maybe 10 to 100 years, it depends how big it is, finally evaporates away by Hawking evaporation. Now you look mm -hmm. at the conformal picture, that's tiny, it's less than a Planck scale mm -hmm. on the other side. So yeah, which 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 it's less than Planck scale, so you are automatically driven to trans-Planckian physics, which I'm means you're already, in some sense, you're already making assumptions about a theory we don't kind of yes, know. Yes, but you know a lot about it. What was that? You know a lot about it. You know how much you know how much mass that I shouldn't go into this because I'm still in the middle of trying to write this paper. Okay, coming two papers with Christoph. Uh huh. And. It's, it's really interesting because it does use twister theory, so we can avoid that. It uses a bit of twister theory to show how you can work out what the mass, how much energy comes out of the spot, so the Hawking point. And you can work out there should be a certain amount of energy which will spread out to a certain size by the time you see last scattering. There is an interesting thing from the discussion with Alan Gluth, which has developed in a certain very interesting direction, which I think I certainly should talk about here. Okay, well, no, 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 yeah, we'll wait till you publish that. But I yes, mean, I, 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 I do, I still don't quite understand why the, why this, tr these high energy stuff that's transplankian comes and just manifests itself in the cosmic microwave background, when in fact, I would have thought that would mean you'd have anisotropies in the energy early on in the history of the universe, which would then, I mean, you, you, hmm. one of the things that inflation overcomes is the fact that any small fluctuations in the early history of the universe will magnify due to gravity, and but therefore... Not, well, we've got an inflation given for free, which is the cosmological inflation. And that well, is the universe. Yeah, I guess it seems to me what you're saying is, I don't like this inflation in the early universe, even though it happens naturally in every particle physics model. So I'm going to invent, I'm going to, I'm going to invent some aspects of, of, general relativity and quantum gravity in the late universe that allow me to produce exactly the same thing without having the 
with, without having the natural consequence of of the evolution of, of a general universe. Well, let me ask you. Let me uh, and you know I, I'm I'm bringing these up as questions, not to attack, because I'm I'm <laughs> yeah. trying to understand it. I mean, I, I I I have problems with it, but I'm also realizing I probably don't understand things. Here's another question I have. Okay. Obviously, conformal. Conformal transformations have been very good to you, <laughs> and, yeah. and 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 it's something that's focused a lot of your thinking about, and 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 that drives your thinking about this conformal cyclic cosmology. But conformal, yeah. but the universe, but quantum mechanics breaks conformal invariance, uh, and and masses break conformal invariance, and 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 both in the early history of the universe. I mean, there's there's dimensional transmutation. There's always scales put in. There's a scale of QCD. Does. What do you mean by that? Well, it introduces quantum quantum mechanics and relativity automatically introduce scales that are like the QCD scale, the scale well, at which, and so, and, and when you, when you do, yeah, renormalization group automatically produces dimensional parameters, which, yes. which, 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 which well, violate conformal theory. invariance, unless you have string theory, but I know you're not depending on string theory either. Well, so think, we'll avoid that. I think, okay. I, I see what you're talking about, but, but I think one has to be careful about these things. And also it has, plays a role in what I'm, trying to say too, but I can't talk about it because it's... Uh, okay, okay, no no worries, but that does bother me. But here's another, here's another, uh, I'll just throw out some of the things I've been thinking about, because I, I as I say, I don't want to just have a back and forth. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, 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 I think I made it clear that I find inflation kind of inevitable and natural and automatically <laughs> overwhelming. But, but aside from that bias, here's another thing, the late universe... I've thought a lot about the late universe. I did eschatology. I didn't even know that was the word until Freeman, Di <laughs> until Freeman Dyson told me that's what I was doing. And because we uh, and I had had a lot of fun. Is that the word? Okay. Eschatology. Eschatology. The far future of the universe. It's what you're doing too, but now yeah, you know. And, 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 so, and, and Freeman and I had a bunch of debates. Okay. Partly be, and it comes back to the beginning. It was actually partly due to good old Fred Hoyle again, who was not only just a wonderful scientist, but a wonderful science fiction writer. Oh, absolutely. Who wrote no, The Black Cloud, which I'm sure is a book. Oh, yes, uh, no, I completely agree. <laughs> and, 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 and Freeman, when I were thinking about life in the future history of the universe and what fluctuations could do and other things, and if you're going to wait 10 to the 100 years for the black holes, then you might expect other, then, then other extremely rare fluctuations can yeah. produce things like maybe even galaxies. And right. so why are you so certain that the universe is just pure radiation? And not only that, but more largely low energy, low frequency radiation. There's a bit of hydrogen running around in this. Well, there could be more than hydrogen. It could be, I mean, if you have 10 to the 100 years, quantum fluctuations are wonderful things. And, and you could imagine a very improbable fluctuation, not even a Boltzmann brain, but, uh, uh, but a, but a, Improbable fluctuations. I where coming from, but I don't believe it. Yes. Okay. No, I, I think these arguments, there are a lot of arguments which are well, all sort of anthropic too, some of them, where you, you somehow, if the universe lives long enough, then anything can happen, sort of arguments. I, I think that's not right. Now, you see, it's, when I'm saying that, it's probably more a kind of feeling that I've, has grown up since, since coming across CCC. And the argument is really from a conformal perspective, it's not that long. I mean, the end, the end of the universe, what I mean, is infinity. But that's not such a long time. If you've got, if you've got mass fade out, depends on how quickly it happens, then, then it's, you can't think of that as, as it's enough time for anything to happen. 
There's a huge difference between infinity and long time. And, and my favorite quote of that is Woody Allen's, who says eternity is a long time, especially near the end. But uh, yes, uh, the argument, I know. <laughs> and you're going to say in some sense it's not too long because... because I'm trying to say it's not that long. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a long time, of course. Yeah. 10, to, 10 to the 100 years is a long time. But in a certain sense, compared with any kind of infinity, any mathematician who plays with infinities knows that's a trivial time. <laughs> <laughs> and mathematicians love infinities. Physicists tend to not like them. And, yeah. um, and, so, and that's another... The question of, of, of probabilities of things happening, do those probabilities stay the same or do they start going down when the universe becomes more rarefied? And that's the problem, I should say, about not just the anthropic principle, but to some extent, anytime we start imagining probabilities when we don't have a fundamental theory, that yeah. when you don't know the phase space of probabilities, then you can almost prove anything, right? Yeah. And, and I think it's a problem that's I often... you. Yeah, the CCC picture gives you a perspective on the world, which makes you not scared of infinity. Okay. Okay. And 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 uh, okay. And and I and I, well then uh, yeah, I agree in principle. Inflation does too because it gives me a potentially eternally future universe of inflating. See, that's an interesting thing. It, I mean, the way that Christoph has been playing with it, and I'm sure I may be revealing too much about it. The interest, the question about inflation has come up in this. You see, I've always dismissed the whole thing. Really, and said, well, it doesn't play a role, but. He's taking it more seriously, being a particle physicist, and he knows the reasons that people put these things in. And and there is a role for some of these things. It's not quite what I had. The picture we have at the moment is not quite. Is, well, uh, any good theory evolves, hopefully, as especially, you know, and that's the whole point. Uh, I think for people who may view the discussion you are having as, 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 as me being a contrarian, physics mm -hmm. evolves by discussions like this. And I think it's really important for people to realize that. And I think the other, and I want to, I guess I want to sum up, I've, uh, because it's been fascinating and I hope it's fa equally fascinating for others. And I, as I say, the purpose of this wasn't to say, hey, I don't, you know, I, I have problems with CCC, was to explore your ideas because you've been, they're so fascinating and your history of ideas is fascinating to me. But I think what I wanted, what it does also illustrate is that when you're at the edge of physics, when you're at the region where we really don't know what's happening, Sure. There can be these vastly different views, and that's a good thing. And yeah. ultimately, ultimately, nature is going to determine what works and what doesn't. And it's important for people to try and poke holes in other people's work, and as well as in their own. Now, the hardest part is to poke it in your own. That's why other, having discussions with others is often useful because you realize that. What and and I so therefore you know I think it's. It, you know, we have different views of what's likely and what's not likely. And that's because at this point, we're at the edge of knowledge. And I think, um, and that's fine. And right now, opinions and views and biases come in. Eventually, that'll all wash away, like yesterday's newspaper, because nature will tell us which way it works and doesn't. I certainly hope anyway. And whether it'll be in our lifetime or, or in a thousand years, I don't know. But but uh, let, let me let... Let, let me just get to the end of this and say, what what do you think remains to be done? What what are the key challenges? Without revealing your papers, where do you think the future of cosmology lies? And I'm not talking about the future of the universe. I'm talking about the future of the field. Well, I'm hoping that people will start to take us seriously. I haven't seen it happening 
It happens much more likely with people who aren't cosmologists and, she, and people who aren't wedded to inflation, for example, and all these ideas which has become part of their thinking. Mm -hmm. And certainly I remember this conference I was at, this was one of the most awful experiences I remember having in a, in a lecture which I had given. It was a, an invitation to go to the 50th anniversary event in Princeton, 50th anniversary of the discovery of the microwave background. And Jim Peebles, whom I have a lot of respect for and liking for, well, asked me One to, has to. Absolutely, absolutely, completely. And he asked me, would I take part in one of the uh, discussion sessions that they have? And they had several of them. And mm -hmm. um, well, each one of them, they, before the discussion session, they would, each one would present a paper, they'd give their own point of view, and then they'd have the discussion. Each one. Now, our mom was the last one. This one, um, what's his name? Green. My, my, Michael Green, Brian Green, or, or, or Brian, Michael Brian. Green, the, the, the string theorist? No, not Michael Green, Brian Green. Brian Green, okay. Yeah, he's also a string theorist, but anyway, a different one. Yeah, I know. okay. He, he was more of a popular, popular yeah, yeah. I'd mm -hmm. say. And he was going to be the chairman. And, he's, and he said, we're going to do this differently. I'm going to ask all the questions. We won't have the initials giving your initial point of view and so on. I said, look, I went to see one of the organizers. I said, look, I've, everybody else up to this point had had a chance of giving, presenting their own point of view. Why am I not allowed to do that? And, and then I said, well, look, I have a few transparencies I really wanted to show. And he said, how many would you like to show? And I thought, hmm, how about three? He said, how about two? <laughs> <laughs> so the moment came, I said, well, look, none of the questions that, that uh, Brian Green was asking had anything to do with what I was going to say, except the one was slightly close to it. I, I took, here's my chance. You see, I said, I've been given the opportunity to show a few slides. Two, two actually. Didn't grumble to say that I was hoping it was going to be three or four. <laughs> yeah. So I started showing these things. And it was basically one of them was on the uh, the, uh, the circles and uh -huh. showing that when you twist the sky, they just get less and less and less. So it is a circular feature. And that was the thing that, that Bahi had done on my suggestion, because there was another way of doing it, which I won't go into that complicated story because it's, it's, it needs to be resolved sometime, but, but never mind. Um, I think it was, I can't remember what the other one was, but it was mostly about that. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, somebody, and I made the point about the fact that, um, that uh, oh gosh, I'm gonna remember, forget people's names again. Doesn't matter, for the, most um, of the public won't know the names anyway. <laughs> anyway, this big Princeton, very distinguished Princeton cosmologist, got to look and repeat his things, do they see mm. these different and I was going to say, and they never, we never found anything. This was a voice shouting out from the audience. And I said, they never found anything because they were looking at the oh, I, bet they, it's, I bet it's David Spurgle you're talking about. Probably. David Spurgle. You got yeah, just okay. from the one that yeah. said it. It was David Spurgle. You're absolutely right. It was David Spurgle. But then other people from the audience started catcalling and saying, we thought Penrose had done good work about all the singularities yeah. and black holes and all this stuff. And what's he talking about before the Big Bang? Now all this nonsense. And I thought this was not a very improper, improper way of dealing with a speaker. And, and, you know, they were just catcalls. Yeah, sure. And it was very strange. And I, I said it was the most unpleasant experience I had in a lecture. I think it was. Well, 
I hope that you haven't felt that way over our talk because I have great respect for. Oh, no, no, for, no, 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 no. I mean, I think I, I, you know, we've the last part of this has been contentious, and it should be because well, nothing against it being contentious, but it's just somehow being disregarded. Yeah, yeah. No, it's better to be. Oh, yeah, it's better to be argued with than disregarded. I think that's always being disregarded, and nobody paying, nobody looking at it. Well, look, I, I, I hope we've now gone on a little over two and a half hours. And I hope, and I hope it didn't seem like that for you. It didn't no, seem no, like that fine. for me. And I, and I, th and I think it's, you know, th it's been more than worth every second. And I have really enjoyed uh, yeah, learning. Let me try and finish answering your question. The where's cosmology going? So I hope people will take me seriously. Mm -hmm. And they realize that the evidence that we have for the Hawking points, which the Confidence level is 99.98%. You can't throw that away. It means something. Curiously, it doesn't quite mean what we say in the paper, because mm -hmm. there was something slightly true, I would have to say, which came out of Alan Groove's discussion. And it's interesting, but I'm not going to go into that. because it's, I, I presume that is that, that, you know, that the correlations introduced by uh, adiabatic random Gaussian fluctuations also produce something that doesn't look that different. Well, there is something else, which... No. Okay, well, I'll wait. It'll be, it'll be fun to learn. It might be important, which is very intriguing. And I think it gives a different angle on that. So when I say, where is cosmology going? I'm hoping that some of these things will be picked up because it's much more exciting to me than playing around with things that we don't know much about. And these are observational facts. I'm talking yeah, about sure. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. The universe is ultimately going to be the arbiter of this. It isn't going to be a gang in Princeton or, or me or you. It's going to be the universe, and that's what makes it so exciting. We Absolutely. will ultimately, we'll ultimately, hopefully, if we're lucky, the universe will give us signals that'll allow us to to adjudicate debates yeah. between pre prejudices or beauty or other things that may or may not be relevant. Mm. And also, the wonderful thing about science, one of the wonderful things, is finding out you're wrong and and learning. Mm -hmm. And I think I like to think. I hope both in you and I, you and I feel that way. I I would love to be wrong about my bias. I think it makes it much more interesting. And there's um, a irony here. Let me tell you a story about somebody saying. You see, I learned my cosmology a lot from Dennis Sharma. Sure. And he was very dedicated to the steady state model. Yeah. Comes the micro back background observations. First of all, he struggles a bit and says it could be some effect and so forth. Then he gives up. He goes around giving talks saying, I was wrong. The steady state model is wrong. And he, I have always had a tremendous respect for him. I don't know many scientists who go so emphatically to say that something they had been arguing for such strength and simply saying it was wrong. It's, I, the, I it's a mark of a great scientist. And Feynman that said that too. The, but the hardest person, the easiest person to fool is yourself. And the hardest thing to do if you're a scientist, especially if you love something dearly, is to look at it and say, what's wrong with it? And That's it's right. a great, it's a great, and I, and, 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 and uh, look, I, I think this has been, has many lessons for young scientists and members of the public. And uh, I'll give you I've, another little, a little coda to this too. Absolutely. Keep going. I'm enjoying it. Go on. So Dennis Sharma said he was wrong. He then built up a group of people studying quantum gravity. He says, what we need to learn is quantum gravity. That's the important part of, of, of cosmology. 
Big Bang. That's sure. how we understand the alien universe. And I get along with all this, and I agree with all that stuff. Now I'm saying he was wrong then, <laughs> <laughs> because it's not quantum gravity. It's the CCC model. Because quantum gravity is, I don't think we've come to a resolution to this. Because I'm saying that quantum gravity, yes, we seem to be led to something like that in the Big Bang singularities. They're a mess. They're probably yeah. Belinsky, Kalatnikov, BKL model, Mismund, mm. BKLM models. Sure, they probably are. But that is not going to answer the problem of the big bang it's completely different it's well like well let me let me let me oh sorry so let me let me put a different quote on this then what would it take for you to say to go around giving lectures saying i was wrong well the ccc model is shown to be wrong yeah, but how sure. what, what would it what would do it for you it wouldn't be hard, wouldn't be hard. look i mean if one could see that uh Well, I mean, nobody has accepted the, apart from them. I haven't seen anybody outside our group. When I say our group, I mean people mm. who've become into our group through not having been in it before. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the Polish people, for example, you see. I mean, Alan group keeps saying, to your group. And I said, my group? What? These are people mm -hmm. who were, and came completely yeah. outside. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the group expands and people look at these things. So I'm hoping that people will take these things which have a strong evidence for them, not just the hawking points, there these signals are stronger, mm. but the rings, and the rings mm. are consistent. There's also a thing which we... Well, that, no, hold on, that's not the answer to my question. That's, you're saying you're hoping they'll be proved right. I, I want, the, the question I want to know is what... They can prove what, wrong. What, well, if they're, not, if they're not seen, that would be evidence against it? Work. They are seen. That's the trouble, you see. So I okay. think proving wrong would have to be something else. Okay, and we don't. But is there any smoking gun that would, uh, just out of interest, that we'd say, look, this convinces me it's the wrong that we, we I'm the barking wrong up the wrong tree? Well, there are places where the numbers come out, could come out wrong. Okay, so you've got to have, for example, as far as I can see it, you've got to have the decay. Not the, yes, the decay of dark matter particles. You see, this is we haven't stressed this particularly. Yeah. I mean, I have written it in the paper. Yeah, well, I was going to, it was one of my tooth fairies. You've got to have the decay of dark matter particles, which decay bothered me. Dark matter particles has to take part in about, the, the half-life has to be about 10 to the 11 years. Yeah. This has to give you the, in the, uh, it has to give you the, the what do they call it, spectral index. Mm -hmm. The spectral index doesn't come from some fancy quantum oil in the bottom. It comes just from the fact that you're thinning out in the dark matter particles. That could so, be wrong. Yeah, and that's another, and my that was on my tooth fairy list, I think. And so you require it. It's something you add to the theory. It didn't come out naturally, but you it's require it to be there. You, you, on the one hand, it's a tooth fairy, which is regarded as bad. And now you're right. putting it on the good side. But, if it's, but, well, yeah, but it's, yeah, but, you know, yeah, but if it makes a prediction that can be ruled out, then it's good. So, so, so let's, let, bottom line is let's wait and see. And I hope, um, and I this hope. is slightly theoretical. You want to see, does the implication of introducing this, the, the uh, uh, cosmological constant into the particle physics picture give you a decay of dark matter? We don't know that. That could be shown to be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Does it give you a decay rate which would agree with the spectral index? That could be, that could be wrong. I mean, that, that could be, they, these are observational Mm -hmm. I don't know how much the decay of the dark matter particles is observation at this stage.
Well, I hope we don't have to wait 10 to the 11th years well, no, um, to, <laughs> before we resolve this question. Because uh, yeah. uh, no, I, I, I can't see why there's any real problem about proving it wrong. There are lots of places you can prove it wrong. Well, let, um, you, I don't, you know, I have, I'm, I'm going to be in this way agnostic to some extent. I have my prejudices, but, but it's fascinating to learn. I, I'm the story of, of where we, how we got here, which I think has been for me fascinating yeah. is, is just, I'm glad we got to focus on, on so much interesting science and the, and, and the way of thinking about the world. So and, I think some I, people would regard CC as actually having been through wrong. Oh yeah, I realize that, and that's why that's I wanted right. to read what you said because I, I I kind of felt like if it had been, you might have you might have agreed, and and and, and obviously you don't think so, and um, um, I'll bet against it. You bet for it, and one of us uh, can have a nice bottle of wine if if it if we find out that I might have regarded as proved wrong. You see, but now we we skipped sideways, which is the the size of the Hawking points. You see, Alan Guth told me from standard calculations of when the, if you put in all this particle stuff and you try to work out in conformal time, when would the um, last scattering surface be? And according to his calculation, it would be half the conformal time than we actually see it. So that could be regarded as proving it's wrong. So if you like it, it's proving that version of the theory wrong. I think that's true. Well, you know, I, it, I'm glad there's that back and forth discussion, um, yeah. and and I, and I'm glad we're having one, and I hope to have another one if we have an opportunity. But I'm really glad we had this chance to have this one. I hope you enjoyed it, and um, and it, and I hope we got to talk. I mean, you, you know, you've done a lot. Of, obviously, anytime one wins a Nobel Prize, one it's lots of inevitable interviews and discussions. Okay. But I hope yeah. that this is. I no, tried. Is I good. wanted to make this a little uh, bit different. It has been a bit different, and it's been much more interesting for me. Thank you oh, very good. much. Well, th no, uh, th thank you so very much. Uh, uh, also, your points about inflation, which, as I say, these are rele very relevant to what Christoph has been doing. I've never taken it seriously, probably for a bad reason. Not partly because I haven't known enough about quantum field theory and particle physics and knowing where all these condensates and whatever they are that seem to produce inflationary phases and things like that. And I've never taken it seriously because mainly because it doesn't smooth the universe out. It may, it may do things, certain things are important, and that could be looked at in the right way, which, which is, in a sense, proving me wrong to a certain degree, because no. I've never, I've never well, taken any of it seriously. I'm glad, I, to say, I'm glad uh, that, my, that my notion, at least the discussion, not mine, but the ones I emphasize that matter to me about, about the inevitability of these phase transitions is, is an issue yeah, that you're thinking about now. I think now. it's something that I have, have swept to, to one side without looking at. And it really, I have become persuaded that they are important in this picture. And that and, is, in a certain sense, showing me wrong. Well, that's a good thing. And let me put it conversely, one of the reasons I wanted to have this discussion, besides the fact that I wanted to have a chance to chat with you again, was that I knew unless I did had it, I probably wouldn't have the patience to work through your book and your ideas because I would tend to just dismiss them. And so for me, it's been a learning experience and caused a lot of thinking, which I particularly appreciate as well. So I hope we both benefited. And, and every time I'm with you, I'm sure I do. So thank you again. And I know the public will. I convinced the public will benefit from this discussion so thanks it's so much thank, thank you thank very you. much i think i've missed out on my walk but apart from that i hope you enjoyed today's conversation 
This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.